enlightenment, and therefore does not have to be read again. There is a reason why this advice is often unheeded. In the case of analytical reading, we said that the skillful reader performs concurrently steps that the beginner must treat as separate. By analogy, it might seem that this kind of preparation for syntopical reading, the inspection of all of the books on your list before starting the analytical reading of any of them, could be done concurrently with analytical reading. But we do not believe that can be done by any reader, no matter how skillful. And this indeed is the mistake that so many young researchers make. Thinking they can collapse these two steps into one, they end up reading everything at the same rate, which may be either too fast or too slow for a particular work, but in any event is wrong for most of the books they read. Once you have identified, by inspection, the books that are relevant to your subject matter, you can then proceed to read them syntopically. Note that in the last sentence we did not say, proceed to read them analytically, as you might have expected. In a sense, of course, you do have to read each of the individual works that together constitute the literature of your subject with those skills that you acquired by applying the rules of analytical reading. But it must never be forgotten that the art of analytical reading applies to the reading of a single book when understanding of that book is the aim in view. As we will see, the aim in syntopical reading is quite different. The Five Steps in Syntopical Reading We are now prepared to explain how to read syntopically. We will assume that, by your inspection of a number of books, you have a pretty good idea of the subject that at least some of them are about, and furthermore, that this is the subject you want to investigate. What, then, do you do? There are five steps in syntopical reading. We shall not call them rules, although we might, for if any of the steps is not taken, syntopical reading becomes much more difficult, perhaps impossible. We will discuss them roughly in the order in which they occur, although in a sense all of them have to take place for any of them to. Step 1 in syntopical reading Finding the Relevant Passages since we are, of course, assuming that you know how to read analytically, we are assuming that you could read each of the relevant books thoroughly if you wanted to. But that would be to place the individual books first in the order of your priorities and your problem second. In fact, the order is reversed. In syntopical reading, it is you and your concerns that are primarily to be served, not the books that you read. Hence, the first step at this level of reading is another inspection of the whole works that you have identified as relevant. Your aim is to find the passages in the books that are most germane to your needs. It is unlikely that the whole of any of the books is directly on the subject you have chosen or that is troubling you. Even if this is so, as it very rarely is, you should read the book quickly. You do not want to lose sight of the fact that you are reading it for an ulterior purpose, namely for the light it may throw on your own problem, not for its own sake. It might seem that this step could be taken concurrently, with the previously described inspection of the book, the purpose of which was to discover whether the book was at all relevant to your concerns. In many cases that is so. But it is unwise to consider that this is always possible. Remember that one of the aims of your first inspection of the book was to zero in on the subject matter of your syntopical reading project. We have said that an adequate understanding of the problem is not always available until you have inspected many of the books on your original list. Therefore, to try to identify the relevant passages 
at the same time that you identify the relevant books, is often perilous. Unless you're very skillful, or already quite familiar with your subject, you'd better treat the two steps as separate. What is important here is to recognize the difference between the first books that you read in the course of syntopical reading and those that you come to after you've read many others on the subject. In the case of the later books, you probably already have a fairly clear idea of your problem, and in that case the two steps can coalesce. But at the beginning they should be kept rigorously separated. Otherwise you're likely to make serious mistakes in identifying the relevant passages, mistakes that will have to be corrected later with a consequent waste of time and effort. Above all, remember that your task is not so much to achieve an overall understanding of the particular book before you, as to find out how it can be useful to you in a connection that may be very far from the author's own purpose in writing it. That does not matter at this stage of the proceedings. The author can help you to solve your own problem without having intended to. In syntopical reading, as we have noted, the books that are read serve you, not the other way around. In this sense, syntopical reading is the most active reading you can do. Analytical reading is also active, of course. But when you read a book analytically, you put yourself in a relation to it of disciple to master. When you read syntopically, you must be the master of the situation. Because this is so, you must go about the business of coming to terms with your authors in a somewhat different way than before. Step 2 in syntopical reading bringing the authors to terms. In interpretive reading, the second stage of analytical reading, the first rule requires you to come to terms with the author, which means identifying his key words and discovering how he uses them. But you are now faced with a number of different authors, and it is unlikely that they will have all used the same words or even the same terms. Thus it is you who must establish the terms and bring your authors to them rather than the other way around. This is probably the most difficult step in syntopical reading. What it really comes down to is forcing an author to use your language rather than using his. All of our normal reading habits are opposed to this. As we have pointed out several times, we assume that the author of a book we want to read analytically is our better, and that is particularly true if the book is a great one. Our tendency is to accept the author's terms and his organization of the subject matter, no matter how active we may be in trying to understand him. In syntopical reading, however, we will very quickly be lost if we accept any one author's terminology. We may understand his book, but we will fail to understand the others, and we will find that not much light is shed on the subject in which we are interested. Not only must we resolutely refuse to accept the terminology of any one author, we must be willing to face the possibility that no author's terminology will be useful to us. In other words, we must accept the fact that coincidence of terminology between us and any of the authors on our list is merely accidental. Often, indeed, such coincidence will be inconvenient. For if we use one term or set of terms of an author, we may be tempted to use others among his terms, and these may get in the way rather than help. Syntopical reading, in short, is to a large extent an exercise in translation. We do not have to translate from one natural language to another, as from French to English, but we do impose a common terminology on a number of authors who, 
whatever natural language they may have shared in common, may not have been specifically concerned with the problem we are trying to solve, and therefore may not have created the ideal terminology for dealing with it. This means that as we proceed on our project of syntopical reading, we must begin to build up a set of terms that, first, helps us to understand all of our authors, not just one or a few of them, and second, helps us to solve our problem. That insight leads to the third step. Step three in syntopical reading, getting the questions clear. The second rule of interpretive reading requires us to find the author's key sentences, and from them to develop an understanding of his propositions. Propositions are made up of terms, and of course we must do a similar job on the works we are reading syntopically. But since we ourselves are establishing the terminology in this case, we are faced with the task of establishing a set of neutral propositions as well. The best way to do this is to frame a set of questions that shed light on our problem, and to which each of our authors gives answers. This, too, is difficult. The questions must be stated in such a way and in such an order that they help us to solve the problem we started with, but they also must be framed in such a way that all or most of our authors can be interpreted as giving answers to them. The difficulty is that the questions we want answered may not have been seen as questions by the authors. Their view of the subject may have been quite different from ours. Sometimes, indeed, we have to accept the fact that an author gives no answer to one or more of our questions. In that case, we must record him as silent or indeterminate on the question. But even if he does not discuss the question explicitly, we can sometimes find an implicit answer in his book. If he had considered the question, we may conclude, he would then have answered it in such and such a way. Restraint is necessary here. We cannot put thoughts into our author's minds or words into their mouths. But we also cannot depend entirely on their explicit statements about the problem. If we could depend on any one of them in that way, we probably would have no problem to solve. We have said that the questions must be put in an order that is helpful to us in our investigation. The order depends on the subject, of course, but some general directions can be suggested. The first questions usually have to do with the existence or character of the phenomenon or idea we are investigating. If an author says that the phenomenon exists, or that the idea has a certain character, then we may ask further questions of his book. These may have to do with how the phenomenon is known, or how the idea manifests itself. A final set of questions might have to do with the consequences of the answers to the previous questions. We should not expect that all of our authors will answer our questions in the same way. If they did, we would once again have no problem to solve. It would have been solved by consensus. Since the authors will differ, we are faced with having to take the next step in syntopical reading. Step 4 in syntopical reading. Defining the issues. If a question is clear, and if we can be reasonably certain that authors answer it in different ways, perhaps pro and con, then an issue has been defined. It is the issue between the authors who answer the question in one way and those who answer it in one or another opposing way. When only two answers are given by all of the authors examined, the issue is a relatively simple one. Often, more than two alternative answers are given to a question. In that case, 
the opposing answers must be ordered in relation to one another, and the authors who adopt them classified according to their views. An issue is truly joined when two authors who understand a question in the same way answer it in contrary or contradictory ways. But this does not happen as often as one might wish. Usually, differences in answers must be ascribed to different conceptions of the question as often as to different views of the subject. The task of the syntopical reader is to define the issues in such a way as to ensure that they are joined as well as may be. Sometimes this forces him to frame the question in a way that is not explicitly employed by any author. There may be many issues involved in the discussion of the problem we are dealing with, but it is likely that they will fall into groups. Questions about the character of the idea under consideration, for example, may generate a number of issues that are connected. A number of issues revolving around a closely connected set of questions may be termed the controversy about that aspect of the subject. Such a controversy may be very complicated, and it is the task of the syntopical reader to sort it out and arrange it in an orderly and perspicuous fashion, even if no author has managed to do that. This sorting out and arranging of the controversies, as well as of the constituent issues, brings us to the final step in syntopical reading. Step 5 in syntopical reading, Analyzing the Discussion So far we have found the relevant passages in the works examined, created a neutral terminology that applies to all or most of the authors examined, framed and ordered a set of questions that most of them can be interpreted as answering, and defined and arranged the issues produced by differing answers to the questions. What, then, remains to be done? The first four steps correspond to the first two groups of rules for analytical reading. These rules, when followed and applied to any book, allowed us to answer the questions, what does it say, and how does it say it? In our syntopical reading project, we are similarly able at this point to answer the same questions about the discussion concerning our problem. In the case of the analytical reading of a single work, two further questions remained to be answered, namely, is it true and what of it? In the case of syntopical reading, we are now prepared to address ourselves to similar questions about the discussion. Let us assume that the problem with which we began was not a simple one, but was rather one of those perennial problems with which thinkers have struggled for centuries and about which good men have disagreed and can continue to disagree. We should recognize on this assumption that our task as syntopical readers is not merely to answer the questions ourselves, the questions that we have so carefully framed and ordered, both to elucidate the discussion of the subject and the subject itself. The truth about a problem of this sort is not found so easily. In fact, we would probably be presumptuous to expect that the truth could be found in any one set of answers to the questions. Rather, it is to be found, if at all, in the conflict of opposing answers, many, if not all of which, may have persuasive evidence and convincing reasons to support them. The truth, then, insofar as it can be found, the solution to the problem, insofar as that is available to us, consists, rather, in the ordered discussion itself than in any set of propositions or assertions about it. Thus, in order to present this truth to our minds and to the minds of others, 
we have to do more than merely ask and answer the questions. We have to ask them in a certain order, and be able to defend that order. We must show how the questions are answered differently and try to say why, and we must be able to point to the texts in the books examined that support our classification of answers. Only when we have done all of this can we claim to have analyzed the discussion of our problem, and only then can we claim to have understood it. We may indeed have done more than that. A thorough analysis of the discussion of a problem may provide the groundwork for further productive work on the problem by others. It can clear away the dead wood and prepare the way for an original thinker to make a breakthrough. Without the work of analysis, that might not have been possible, or the dimensions of the problem might not have been visible. The Need for Objectivity An adequate analysis of the discussion of a problem or subject matter identifies and reports the major issues or basic intellectual oppositions in that discussion. This does not imply that disagreement is always the dominant feature of every discussion. On the contrary, agreement in most cases accompanies disagreement. That is, on most issues, the opinions or views that present opposite sides of the dispute are shared by several authors, often by many. Seldom do we find a solitary exponent of a controversial position. The agreement of human beings about the nature of things in any field of inquiry establishes some presumption of the truth of the opinions they commonly hold, but their disagreement establishes the counter-presumption that none of the opinions in conflict, whether shared or not, may be wholly true. Among conflicting opinions, one may, of course, be wholly true and all the rest false, but it is possible that each expresses some portion of the whole truth. And except for flat and isolated contradictions, which are rare in any discussion of the kind of problems we're dealing with here, it is even possible that all the conflicting opinions may be false, just as it is possible for that opinion to be false on which all seem to agree. Some opinion as yet unexpressed may be the truth or nearer to it. This is another way of saying that the aim of a project of syntopical reading is not final answers to, to the questions that are developed in the course of it, or the final solution of the problem with which the project began. This is particularly true of the report we try to make of such syntopical reading. It would be dogmatic, not dialectical, if on any of the important issues that it identified and analyzed, it asserted or tried to prove the truth or falsity of any view. If it did that, the syntopical analysis would cease to be syntopical. It would become simply one more voice in the discussion, thereby losing its detached and objective character. The point is not that one more voice carries no weight in the forum of human discussion on important issues. The point is that a different type of contribution to the pursuit of understanding can and should be made. And this contribution consists in being resolutely objective and detached throughout. The special quality that a syntopical analysis tries to achieve can indeed be summarized in the two words, dialectical objectivity. The syntopical reader, in short, tries to look at all sides and to take no sides. Of course he will fail in this exacting ideal. Absolute objectivity is not humanly possible.
he may succeed in taking no sides, presenting the issues without prejudice to any partisan point of view, and treating opposing views impartially. But it is easier to take no sides than to look at all sides. In this latter respect, the syntopical reader will undoubtedly fail. All possible sides of an issue cannot be exhaustively enumerated. Nevertheless, he must try. Taking no sides is easier than looking at all sides, we say. But it remains difficult even so. The syntopical reader must resist certain temptations and know his own mind. Perfect dialectical objectivity is not guaranteed by avoiding explicit judgments on the truth of conflicting opinions. Partiality can intrude in a variety of subtle ways, by the manner in which arguments are summarized, by shades of emphasis and neglect, by the tone of a question or the color of a passing remark, and by the order in which the various different answers to key questions are presented. In order to avoid some of these dangers, the conscientious syntopical reader may resort to one obvious device and use it as much as possible. That is, he must constantly refer back to the actual text of his authors, reading the relevant passages over and over, and in presenting the results of his work to a wider audience, he must quote the opinion or argument of an author in the writer's own language. Although it may appear to do so, this does not contradict what we said earlier about the necessity of finding a neutral terminology in which to analyze the problem. That necessity remains, and when summaries of an author's argument are presented, they must be presented in that language and not the author's. But the author's own words, carefully quoted so as not to wrench them out of context, must accompany the summary, so that the reader can judge for himself whether the interpretation of the author is correct. Only the syntopical reader's firm intention to avoid them can be relied on to prevent other sorts of departure from dialectical objectivity. That ideal demands a deliberate effort to balance question against question, to forego any comment that might be prejudicial, to check any tendency toward overemphasis or underemphasis. In the last analysis, although a reader may be the judge of the effectiveness of a written report of a dialectical exposition, only the writer of it, only the syntopical reader himself, can know whether he has satisfied these requirements. An example of an exercise in syntopical reading, the idea of progress. An example may be helpful to explain how syntopical reading works. Let us consider the idea of progress. We do not take this subject at random. We have done extensive research on it. The example would not be useful to you if that were not so. Note. The results of these researches were published as The Idea of Progress, New York, Prager, 1967. The work was done under the auspices of the Institute for Philosophical Research, of which the authors are, respectively, Director and Associate Director. The investigation of this important historical and philosophical idea occupied several years. The first task was to produce a list of works to be examined for relevant passages, to amass a bibliography. It finally ran to more than 450 items. This task was accomplished by a series of inspectional readings of several times that many books 
articles, and other pieces. It is important to point out that in the case of the idea of progress, as would be true in the case of most other important ideas, many of the items finally judged to be relevant were found more or less by accident, or at least with the help of educated guesses. There were obvious places to start. Many recent books contain the word progress in their titles, but others do not, and most of the older books, although relevant to the subject, do not even employ the term. A few fictional and poetical works were read, but on the whole it was decided to concentrate on expository works. We have already observed that including novels, plays, and poems in a syntopical reading project is difficult, and this is so for several reasons. First of all, the backbone or essence of a story is its plot, not its positions on issues. Second, even the most talkative characters seldom take clear positions on an issue. They tend to talk in the story about other matters, mainly emotional relations. Third, even if a character does make such a speech, as, for example, Settembrini does about progress in Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, we can never be sure that it is the author's view that is being represented. Is the author being ironic in allowing his character to go on about the subject? Is he intending you to see the foolishness of the position rather than its wisdom? Generally speaking, an intensive effort of synthetic interpretation is required before a fictional work can be placed on one side or another of an issue. The effort is so great, and the results essentially so dubious, that usually it is prudent to abstain. The discussion of progress in the many works that remained to be examined was, as is usually the case, apparently chaotic. Faced with this fact, the task was, as we have indicated, to develop a neutral terminology. This was a complex undertaking, but one example may help to explain what was done. The word progress itself is used by authors in a number of different ways. Most of these different ways reflect no more than shades of meaning, and they can be handled in the analysis. But the word is used by some authors to denote a certain kind of movement forward in history that is not an improvement. Since most of the authors use the word to denote a historical change in the human condition that is for the better, and since betterment is of the essence of the conception, the same word could not be applied to both views. In this case, the majority gained the day, and the minority faction had to be referred to as authors who assert non-meliorative advance in history. The point is that when discussing the views of the minority faction, we could not employ the word progress, even though the authors involved had used it themselves. The third step in syntopical reading is, as we have noted, getting the questions clear. Our intuition about the primary question in the case of progress turned out to be correct upon examination. The first question to ask, the question to which authors can be interpreted as giving various answers, is, does progress occur in history? Is it a fact that the general course of historical change is in the direction of improvement in man's condition? Basically, there are three different answers to this question put forth in the literature of the subject. One, yes. Two, no. And three, we cannot know. However, there are a number of different ways of saying yes, several different ways of saying no, and at least three different ways of saying that we cannot know whether human progress occurs or not. The multifarious and interrelated answers to this primary question constitute what we decided to call 
the general controversy about progress. It is general in the sense that every author we studied who has anything significant to say about the subject takes sides on the various issues that can be identified with it. But there is also a special controversy about progress, which is made up of issues that are joined only by progress authors, authors who assert that progress occurs. These issues have to do with the nature or properties of the progress that they all, being progress authors, assert is a fact of history. There are only three issues here, although the discussion of each of them is complex. They can be stated as questions. 1. Is progress necessary, or is it contingent on other occurrences? 2. Will progress continue indefinitely, or will it eventually come to an end or plateau out? 3. Is there progress in human nature, as well as in human institutions? in the human animal itself, or merely in the external conditions of human life. Finally, there's a set of subordinate issues, as we call them, again only among progress authors, about the respects in which progress occurs. We identified six areas in which progress is said by some authors to occur, although other writers deny its occurrence in one or more of these areas, although never in all, since they are by definition authors assert the occurrence of some kind of progress. The six are, one, progress in knowledge, two, technological progress, three, economic progress, four, political progress, five, moral progress, and six, progress in the fine arts. The discussion of the last point raises special problems, since in our opinion no author genuinely asserts that such aesthetic progress occurs although a number of writers deny that progress occurs in this respect. The structure of the analysis of progress just described exemplifies our effort to define the issues within the discussion of this subject and to analyze the discussion itself. In other words, to take the fourth and fifth steps in syntopical reading. And something like this must always be done by a syntopical reader, although, of course, he does not always have to write a long book reporting his researches. Note, now that such a book has been written and published, we hope that it will indeed make possible a breakthrough in thought such as we envisioned as the fruit of syntopical reading, and that the book on progress may facilitate further work in its field, as other books produced by the Institute for Philosophical Research on the ideas of freedom, happiness, justice, and love have done in theirs, work that was inordinately difficult before these books appeared. The Syntopicon and How to Use It If you read this chapter carefully, you will have noticed that, although we spent some time discussing it, we did not really solve what we have called the paradox of syntopical reading. That paradox can be stated thus. Unless you know what books to read, you cannot read syntopically. But unless you can read syntopically, you do not know what to read. Another way to state it is in the form of what may be called the fundamental problem of syntopical reading, namely, that if you do not know where to start, you cannot read syntopically. And even if you have a rough idea of where to begin, the time required to find the relevant books and relevant passages in those books may exceed the time required to take all of the other steps combined. Actually, of course, there is at least a theoretical resolution of the paradox and solution of the problem. Theoretically, 
you could know the major literature of our tradition so thoroughly that you had a working notion of where every idea is discussed in it. But if you are such a person, you need no help from anybody, and we cannot tell you anything you do not know about syntopical reading. On the other hand, even if you did not have this knowledge yourself, you might be able to apply to someone else who did. But you should recognize that if you were able to apply to such a person, his advice might turn out to be almost as much a hindrance as a help. If the subject was one on which he had himself done special research, it would be hard for him merely to tell you the relevant passages to read without telling you how to read them, and that might well get in your way. But if he had not done special research on the subject, he might not know a great deal more than yourself, although it might seem so both to him and to you. What is needed, therefore, is a reference book that tells you where to go to find the relevant passages on a large number of subjects of interest, without at the same time saying how the passages should be read, without prejudging their meaning or significance. The Syntopicon is an example of such a work. Produced in the 1940s, it is a topical index to the set of books titled Great Books of the Western World. Under each of some 3,000 topics or subjects, it lists references to pages within the set where that subject is discussed. Some of the references are to passages covering many pages. Others are to key paragraphs or even parts of paragraphs. No more time is required to find them than is needed to take down the indicated volume and flip through its pages. The Syntopicon has one major defect, of course. It is an index of just one set of books, albeit a large one, and it gives only a very rough indication of where passages may be found in other books that are not included in the set. Nevertheless, it always provides you with at least a place to start on any syntopical reading project. And it is also true that the books included in the set are ones that you would almost always want to read anyway in the course of any such project. Thus, the Syntopicon should be able to save the mature scholar or reader who is beginning his research into a certain problem, much of the preliminary labor of research, and advance him rapidly to the point where he can begin to think independently about it because he knows what thinking has been done. Useful as the Syntopicon is for that kind of reader, it is much more useful for the beginner. The Syntopicon can help such a reader in three ways, initiatively, suggestively, and instructively. It works initiatively by overcoming the initial difficulty that anyone faces when confronted by the classical books of our tradition. These works are a little overpowering. We may wish that we had read them, but often we do not do so. We find ourselves advised from all sides to read them, and we are given reading programs, beginning with the easier works and proceeding to the more difficult ones. But all such programs require the reading of whole books, or at least the integral reading of large parts of them. It is a matter of general experience that this kind of solution seldom achieves the desired result. A syntopical reading of these major works with the aid of the syntopicon provides a radically different solution. The syntopicon initiates the reading of great books by enabling persons to read particular ones on the subjects in which they are interested, and on those subjects to read relatively short passages from a large number of authors. It helps us to read in the great books before we have read through them. Syntopical reading in the great books with the help of the syntopicon may also work suggestively, starting from the reader's existing interest in a particular subject, 
it may arouse or create other interests in related subjects. And once started on an author, it is hard not to explore the context. Before you know it, you've read a good portion of the book. Finally, syntopical reading with the aid of the syntopicon works instructively, in three distinct ways. This, in fact, is one of the major benefits of this level of reading. First, the topic in connection with which the passage is being read serves to give direction to the reader in interpreting the passage. But it does not tell him what the passage means, since the passage may be relevant to the topic in several or many different ways. Hence, the reader is called upon to discover precisely what relevance the passage has to the topic. To learn to do this is to acquire a major skill in the art of reading. Second, the collection of a number of passages on the same topic but from different works and different authors serves to sharpen the reader's interpretation of each passage read. Sometimes, when passages from the same book are read in sequence and in the context of one another, each becomes clearer. Sometimes the meaning of each of a series of contrasting or conflicting passages from different books is accentuated when they are read against one another. And sometimes the passages from one author, by amplifying or commenting on the passages from another, materially help the reader's understanding of the second author. Third, if syntopical reading is done on a number of different subjects, the fact that the same passage will often be found cited in the syntopicon under two or more subjects will have its instructive effect. The passage has an amplitude of meaning that the reader will come to perceive as he interprets it somewhat differently in relation to different topics. Such multiple interpretation not only is a basic exercise in the art of reading, but also tends to make the mind habitually alert to the many strains of meaning that any rich or complex passage can contain. Because we believe that the syntopicon can be useful to any reader wishing to read in the manner described in this chapter, be he a beginner or a mature scholar and researcher, we have taken the liberty of adopting its name for this level of reading. We hope the reader will forgive us what may seem to be a small self-indulgence. In return for that forgiveness, we would like to point out an important fact. There is a considerable difference between syntopical reading with a small s and syntopical reading where the latter phrase refers to reading the great books with the help of the syntopicon. Syntopical reading, in the latter sense, can constitute a part of any syntopical reading project where the term is used in the former sense. And perhaps it would always be wise to start there. But syntopical reading with a small s is a term of much wider application than syntopical reading with a capital S. On the Principles That Underlie Syntopical Reading There are those who say that syntopical reading, in the broader sense just mentioned, is impossible. It is wrong, they say, to impose a terminology, even a neutral one, if there is any such thing, on an author. His own terminology must be treated as sacrosanct, because books should never be read out of context. And besides, translation from one set of terms to another is always dangerous, because words are not controllable like mathematical symbols. Further, the objectors maintain, Syntopical reading involves reading authors widely separated in space and time and differing radically in style and approach. 
as if they were members of the same universe of discourse, as if they were talking to one another, and this distorts the facts of the matter. Each author is a little universe in himself, and although connections can be made between different books written by the same author at different times, even here there are dangers, they warn. There are no clear connections relating one author to another. They maintain, finally, that the subjects that authors discuss, as such, are not as important as the ways in which they discuss them. The style, they say, is the man, and if we ignore how an author says something, in the process of trying to discover what he says, we will miss both kinds of understanding. It should be apparent that we disagree with all of those charges, and therefore an answer to each of them is in order. Let us take them one at a time. First, to the point about terminology. To deny that an idea can be expressed in more than one set of terms is similar to denying that translation is possible from one natural language to another. That denial is made, of course. Recently, for example, we read an introduction to a new translation of the Koran that began by saying that to translate the Koran is impossible. But since the author then proceeded to explain how he had done it, we could only assume that he meant the translation is particularly difficult in the case of a book held to be holy by large numbers of people. We would agree, but the difficult is not the impossible. In fact, the view that an author's terms must be treated as sacrosanct is probably always merely another way of saying that it is difficult to translate from one terminology to another. We would agree to that, too. But again, the difficult is not the impossible. Second, to the point about the separateness and uniqueness of authors. This comes down to saying that if Aristotle, for example, walked into our office, attired, no doubt, in robes and accompanied by an interpreter who knew both modern English and classical Greek, we would not be able to understand him or he us. We simply do not believe it. Doubtless, Aristotle would be amazed at some of the things he saw, but we are quite confident that within ten minutes we could, if we wanted to, be engaged in a philosophical discussion of problems that we shared. There might be recurrent difficulties about certain conceptions, but as soon as we recognized them as such, we could resolve them. If that is possible, and we do not really think anyone would deny it, then it is not impossible for one book to talk to another through the medium of an interpreter, namely you, the syntopical reader. Care is required, of course, and you should know both languages, that is, both books, as well as you can. But the problem is not insuperable, and it is simply foolish to suggest that it is. Finally, to the point about the manner or style. This is equivalent, we think, to saying that there is no rational communication among men, but that all men communicate at the emotional level, which is the same level at which they communicate with pets. If you say, I love you, to your dog, in an angry tone of voice, he will cower. But he does not understand you. Can anyone seriously assert that there is nothing more than tone of voice or gesture in vocal communications between two human beings? Tone of voice is important particularly when emotional relations are the primary content of the communication. And body language probably has things to tell us if we will only listen or look. 
But there is something else, too, in human communication. If you ask someone how to reach the exit, and he tells you to follow Corridor B, it does not matter what tone of voice he employs. He is either right or wrong, lying or telling the truth. But the point is that you will soon find that out by following Corridor B. You have understood what he said, as well as reacting, no doubt, in all sorts of ways, to how he said it. Believing, then, that translation is possible, because it is done all the time, that books can talk to one another, because human beings do so, and that there is an objective, rational content of communication between human beings when they are trying to be rational, because we can and do learn from each other, we believe that syntopical reading is possible. Summary of Syntopical Reading We have now completed our discussion of syntopical reading. Let us therefore display the various steps that must be taken at this level of reading in outline form. As we have seen, there are two main stages of syntopical reading. One is preparatory, and the other is syntopical reading proper. Let us write out all of these steps for review. Roman numeral 1. Surveying the field. Preparatory to syntopical reading. 1. Create a tentative bibliography of your subject by recourse to library catalogs, advisors, and bibliographies in books. 2. Inspect all of the books on the tentative bibliography to ascertain which are germane to your subject, and also to acquire a clearer idea of the subject. Note, these two steps are not, strictly speaking, chronologically distinct. That is, the two steps have an effect on each other, with the second in particular serving to modify the first. Roman numeral 2. Syntopical reading of the bibliography amassed in stage 1. 1. Inspect the books already identified as relevant to your subject in stage 1 in order to find the most relevant passages. 2. Bring the authors to terms by constructing a neutral terminology of the subject that all or the great majority of the authors can be interpreted as employing, whether they actually employ the words or not. 3. Establish a set of neutral propositions for all of the authors by framing a set of questions to which all or most of the authors can be interpreted as giving answers, whether they actually treat the questions explicitly or not. 4. Define the issues, both major and minor ones, by ranging the opposing answers of authors to the various questions on one side of an issue or another. You should remember that an issue does not always exist explicitly between or among authors, but that it sometimes has to be constructed by interpretation of the author's views on matters that may not have been their primary concern. 5. Analyze the discussion by ordering the questions and issues in such a way as to throw maximum light on the subject. More general issues should precede less general ones, and relations among issues should be clearly indicated. Note. Dialectical detachment or objectivity should, ideally, be maintained throughout. One way to ensure this is always to accompany an interpretation of an author's views on an issue with an actual quotation from his text. Chapter 21 Reading and the Growth of the Mind 
We have now completed the task that lay before us at the beginning of this book. We have shown that activity is the essence of good reading, and that the more active reading is, the better it is. We have defined active reading as the asking of questions, and we have indicated what questions must be asked of any book, and how those questions must be answered in different ways for different kinds of books. We have identified and discussed the four levels of reading, and shown how these are cumulative, earlier or lower levels being contained in later or higher ones. Consequent upon our stated intention, we have laid more stress upon the later and higher levels of reading than upon the earlier and lower ones, and we have therefore emphasized analytical and syntopical reading. Since analytical reading is probably the most unfamiliar kind for most readers, we have discussed it at greater length than any of the other levels, giving its rules and explaining them in the order in which they must be applied. But almost everything that was said of analytical reading also applies, with certain adaptations that were mentioned in the last chapter, to syntopical reading as well. We have completed our task, but you may not have completed yours. We do not need to remind you that this is a practical book, nor that the reader of a practical book has a special obligation with respect to it. If, as we said, the reader of a practical book accepts the ends it proposes and agrees the means recommended are appropriate and effective, then he must act in the way proposed. You may not accept the primary aim we have endorsed, namely that you should be able to read as well as possible, nor the means we have proposed to reach it, namely the rules of inspectional, analytical, and syntopical reading. In that case, however, you are not likely to be reading this page. But if you do accept that aim and agree that the means are appropriate, then you must make the effort to read as you probably have never read before. That is your task and your obligation. Can we help you in it in any way? We think we can. The task falls mainly on you. It is you who, henceforth, must do all the work and obtain all the benefits. But there are several things that remain to be said about the end and the means. Let us discuss the latter first. What good books can do for us? Means can be interpreted in two ways. In the previous paragraph, we interpreted the term as referring to the rules of reading, that is, the method by which you become a better reader. But means can also be interpreted as referring to the things you read. Having a method without materials to which it can be applied is as useless as having the materials with no method to apply to them. In the latter sense of the term, the means that will serve you in the further improvement of your reading are the books you will read. We have said that the method applies to anything you read, and that is true, if you understand by the statement any kind of book, whether fiction or non-fiction, imaginative or expository, practical or theoretical. But in fact, the method, at least as it is exemplified in our discussion of analytical and syntopical reading, does not apply to every book. The reason is that some books do not require it. We have made this point before, but we want to make it now again because of its relevance to the task that lies before you. If you are reading in order to become a better reader, you cannot read just any book or article. You will not improve as a reader if all you read are books that are well within your capacity. You must tackle books that are beyond you or, as we have said, books that are over your head. Only books of that sort will make you stretch your mind.
and unless you stretch, you will not learn. Thus it becomes of crucial importance for you not only to be able to read well, but also to be able to identify those books that make the kinds of demands on you that improvement in reading ability requires. A book that can do no more than amuse or entertain you may be a pleasant diversion for an idle hour, but you must not expect to get anything but amusement from it. We are not against amusement in its own right, but we do want to stress that improvement in reading skill does not accompany it. The same goes for a book that merely informs you of facts that you did not know without adding to your understanding of those facts. Reading for information does not stretch your mind any more than reading for amusement. It may seem as though it does, but that is merely because your mind is fuller of facts than it was before you read the book. However, your mind is essentially in the same condition that it was before. There has been a quantitative change, but no improvement in your skill. We have said many times that the good reader makes demands on himself when he reads. He reads actively, effortfully. Now we are saying something else. The books that you will want to practice your reading on, particularly your analytical reading, must also make demands on you. They must seem to you to be beyond your capacity. You need not fear that they really are, because there is no book that is completely out of your grasp if you apply the rules of reading to it that we have described. This does not mean, of course, that these rules will accomplish immediate miracles for you. There are certainly some books that will continue to extend you no matter how good a reader you are. Actually, those are the very books that you must seek out, because they are the ones that can best help you to become an ever more skillful reader. Some readers make the mistake of supposing that such books, the ones that provide a constant and never-ending challenge to their skill, are always ones in relatively unfamiliar fields. In practice, this comes down to believing, in the case of most readers, that only scientific books, and perhaps philosophical ones, satisfy the criterion. But that is far from the case. We have already remarked that the great scientific books are in many ways easier to read than non-scientific ones, because of the care with which scientific authors help you to come to terms, identify the key propositions, and state the main arguments. These helps are absent from poetical works, and so in the long run they are quite likely to be the hardest, the most demanding books that you can read. Homer, for example, is in many ways harder to read than Newton, despite the fact that you may get more out of Homer the first time through. The reason is that Homer deals with subjects that are harder to write well about. The difficulties that we are talking about here are very different from the difficulties that are presented by a bad book. It is hard to read a bad book, too, for it defies your efforts to analyze it, slipping through your fingers whenever you think you've pinned it down. In fact, in the case of a bad book, there is really nothing to pin down. It is not worth the effort of trying. You receive no reward for your struggle. A good book does reward you for trying to read it. The best books reward you most of all. The reward, of course, is of two kinds. First, there is the improvement in your reading skill that occurs when you successfully tackle a good, difficult work. Second, and this in the long run is much more important, a good book can teach you about the world and yourself. You learn more than how to read better. You also learn more about life. You become wiser, not just more knowledgeable, 
Books that provide nothing but information can produce that result. But wiser, in the sense that you are more deeply aware of the great and enduring truths of human life. There are some human problems, after all, that have no solution. There are some relationships, both among human beings and between human beings and the non-human world, about which no one can have the last word. This is true not only in such fields as science and philosophy, where it is obvious that final understanding about nature and its laws, and about being and becoming, has not been achieved by anyone and never will be. It is also true of such familiar and everyday matters as the relation between men and women, or parents and children, or man and God. These are matters about which you cannot think too much or too well. The greatest books can help you to think better about them, because they were written by men and women who thought better than other people about them. The Pyramid of Books The great majority of the several million books that have been written in the Western tradition alone, more than 99% of them, will not make sufficient demands on you for you to improve your skill in reading. This may seem like a distressing fact, and the percentages may seem an overestimate. But obviously, considering the numbers involved, it is true. These are the books that can be read only for amusement or information. The amusement may be of many kinds, and the information may be interesting in all sorts of ways. But you should not expect to learn anything of importance from them. In fact, you do not have to read them, analytically, at all. Skimming will do. There is a second class of books from which you can learn both how to read and how to live. Less than one out of every hundred books belongs in this class. Probably it's more like one in a thousand or even one in ten thousand. These are the good books, the ones that were carefully wrought by their authors, the ones that convey to the reader significant insights about subjects of enduring interest to human beings. There are in all probably no more than a few thousand such books. They make severe demands on the reader. They are worth reading analytically, once. If you are skillful, you will be able to get everything out of them that they can give in the course of one good reading. They are books that you read once and then put away on your shelf. You know that you will never have to read them again, although you may return to them to check certain points and to refresh your memory of certain ideas or episodes. It is in the case of such books that the notes you make in the margin or elsewhere in the volume are particularly valuable. How do you know that you do not ever have to read such books again? You know it by your own mental reaction to the experience of reading them. Such a book stretches your mind and increases your understanding. But as your mind stretches and your understanding increases, you realize, by a process that is more or less mysterious, that you are not going to be changed any more in the future by this book. You realize that you have grasped the book in its entirety. You have milked it dry. You are grateful to it for what it has given you, but you know it has no more to give. Of the few thousand such books, there is a much smaller number, here the number is probably less than a hundred, that cannot be exhausted by even the very best reading you can manage. How do you recognize this? Again, it is rather mysterious. But when you've closed the book after reading it analytically to the best of your ability and place it back on the shelf, you have a sneaking suspicion that there is more there than you got. We say suspicion because that may be all it is at this stage. 
If you knew what it was that you had missed, your obligation as an analytical reader would take you back to the book immediately to seek it out. In fact, you cannot put your finger on it, but you know it is there. You find that you cannot forget the book, that you keep thinking about it and your reaction to it. Finally, you return to it. And then a very remarkable thing happens. If the book belongs to the second class of books to which we referred before, you find, on returning to it, that there was less there than you remembered. The reason, of course, is that you yourself have grown in the meantime. Your mind is fuller, your understanding greater. The book has not changed, but you have. Such a return is inevitably disappointing. But if the book belongs to the highest class, the very small number of inexhaustible books, you discover on returning that the book seems to have grown with you. You see new things in it, whole sets of new things, that you did not see before. Your previous understanding of the book is not invalidated, assuming that you read it well the first time. It is just as true as it ever was, and in the same ways that it was true before. But now it is true in still other ways, too. How can a book grow as you grow? It is impossible, of course. A book, once it is written and published, does not change. But what you only now begin to realize is that the book was so far above you to begin with that it has remained above you, and probably always will remain so, since it is a really good book, a great book, as we might say. It is accessible at different levels. Your impression of increased understanding on your previous reading was not false. The book truly lifted you then. But now, even though you have become wiser and more knowledgeable, it can lift you again, and it will go on doing this until you die. There are, obviously, not many books that can do this for any of us. Our estimate was that the number is considerably less than a hundred. But the number is even less than that for any given reader. Human beings differ in many ways other than in the power of their minds. They have different tastes. Different things appeal more to one person than to another. You may never feel about Newton the way you feel about Shakespeare either because you may be able to read Newton so well that you do not have to read him again, or because mathematical systems of the world just do not have all that appeal to you. Or, if they do, Charles Darwin is an example of such a person, then Newton may be one of the handful of books that are great for you, and not Shakespeare. We do not want to state authoritatively that any particular book or group of books must be great for you in this sense although in our first appendix we do list those books that experience has shown are capable of having this kind of value for many readers. Our point instead is that you should seek out the few books that can have this value for you. They are the books that will teach you the most, both about reading and about life. They are the books to which you will want to return over and over. They are the books that will help you to grow. The Life and Growth of the Mind There is an old test, it was quite popular a generation ago, that was designed to tell you which books are the ones that can do this for you. Suppose, the test went, that you know in advance that you will be marooned on a desert island for the rest of your life, or at least for a long period. Suppose, too, that you have time to prepare for the experience. 
there are certain practical and useful articles that you would be sure to take with you. You will also be allowed ten books. Which ones would you select? Trying to decide on a list is instructive, and not only because it may help you to identify the books that you would most like to read and reread, that, in fact, is probably of minor importance. Compared with what you can learn about yourself when you imagine what life would be like if you were cut off from all the sources of amusement, information, and understanding that ordinarily surround you. Remember, there would be no radio or television on the island and no lending library. There would be just you and ten books. This imagined situation seems bizarre and unreal when you begin to think about it. But is it actually so unreal? We do not think so. We are all, to some extent, persons marooned on a desert island. We all face the same challenge that we would face if we really were there, the challenge of finding the resources within ourselves to live a good human life. There is a strange fact about the human mind, a fact that differentiates the mind sharply from the body. The body is limited in ways that the mind is not. One sign of this is that the body does not continue indefinitely to grow in strength and develop in skill and grace. By the time most people are thirty years old, their bodies are as good as they will ever be. In fact, many persons' bodies have begun to deteriorate by that time. But there is no limit to the amount of growth and development that the mind can sustain. The mind does not stop growing at any particular age. Only when the brain itself loses its vigor in senescence does the mind lose its power to increase in skill and understanding. This is one of the most remarkable things about human beings, and it may actually be the major difference between Homo sapiens and the other animals, which do not seem to grow mentally beyond a certain stage in their development. But this great advantage that man possesses carries with it a great peril. The mind can atrophy like the muscles, if it is not used. Atrophy of the mental muscles is the penalty that we pay for not taking mental exercise, and this is a terrible penalty, for there is evidence that atrophy of the mind is a mortal disease. There seems to be no other explanation for the fact that so many busy people die so soon after retirement. They were kept alive by the demands of their work upon their minds, they were propped up artificially, as it were, by external forces. But as soon as those demands cease, having no resources within themselves in the way of mental activity, they cease thinking altogether and expire. Television, radio, and all the sources of amusement and information that surround us in our daily lives are also artificial props. They can give us the impression that our minds are active because we are required to react to stimuli from outside. But the power of those external stimuli to keep us going is limited. They're like drugs. We grow used to them, and we continuously need more and more of them. Eventually, they have little or no effect. Then, if we lack resources within ourselves, we cease to grow intellectually, morally, and spiritually. And when we cease to grow, we begin to die. Reading well, which means reading actively, is thus not only a good in itself, nor is it merely a means to advancement in our work or career, 
it also serves to keep our minds alive and growing. Appendix A A Recommended Reading List On the following pages appears a list of books that it would be worth your while to read. We mean the phrase, worth your while, quite seriously. Although not all of the books listed are great in any of the commonly accepted meanings of the term, all of them will reward you for the effort you make to read them. All of these books are over most people's heads, sufficiently so at any rate to force most readers to stretch their minds to understand and appreciate them. And that, of course, is the kind of book you should seek out if you want to improve your reading skills and at the same time discover the best that has been thought and said in our literary tradition. Some of the books are great in the special sense of the term that we employed in the last chapter. On returning to them, you will always find something new, often many things. They are endlessly re-readable. Another way to say this is that some of the books, we will not say exactly how many, nor will we try to identify them, since to some extent this is an individual judgment, are over the heads of all readers, no matter how skillful. As we observed in the last chapter, these are the works that everyone should make a special effort to seek out. They are the truly great books. They are the books that anyone should choose to take with him to his own desert island. The list is long, and it may seem a little overwhelming. We urge you not to allow yourself to be abashed by it. In the first place, you are likely to recognize the names of most of the authors. There's nothing here that is so recondite as to be esoteric. More important, we want to remind you that it is wise to begin with those books that interest you most, for whatever reason. As we have pointed out several times, the primary aim is to read well, not widely. You should not be disappointed if you read no more than a handful of the books in a year. The list is not something to be gotten through in any amount of time. It is not a challenge that you can meet only by finishing every item on it. Instead, it is an invitation that you can accept graciously by beginning wherever you feel at home. The authors are listed chronologically according to the known or supposed date of their birth. When several works of an author are listed, these two are arranged chronologically where that is possible. Scholars do not always agree about the first publication of a book, but this need not concern you. The point to remember is that the list as a whole moves forward through time. That does not necessarily mean that you should read it chronologically, of course. You might even start with the end of the list and read backward to Homer and the Old Testament. We have not listed all the works of every author. We have usually cited only the more important titles, selecting them in the case of expository books to show the diversity of an author's contribution to different fields of learning. In some instances, we have listed an author's works and specified in brackets those titles that are especially important or useful. In drawing up a list of this kind, the greatest difficulty always arises with respect to the relatively contemporary items. The closer an author is to our own time, the harder it is to exercise a detached judgment about him. It's all very well to say that time will tell, but we may not want to wait. Thus, with regard to the more recent writers and books, there is much room for differences of opinion, and we would not claim for the later items on our list the degree of authority that we can claim for the earlier ones. There may be differences of opinion about some of the earlier items, too, and we may be charged with being prejudiced against some authors that we have not listed at all. We are willing to admit that this may be true, in some cases. This is our list, and it may differ in some respects 
from lists drawn up by others. But it will not differ very significantly if everyone concurs seriously in the aim of making up a reading program that is worth spending a lifetime on. Ultimately, of course, you should make up your own list and then go to work on it. It is wise, however, to read a fair number of the books that have been unanimously acclaimed before you branch off on your own. This list is a place to begin. We want to mention one omission that may strike some readers as unfortunate. The list contains only Western authors and books. There are no Chinese, Japanese, or Indian works. There are several reasons for this. One is that we are not particularly knowledgeable outside of the Western literary tradition, and our recommendations would carry little weight. Another is that there is in the East no single tradition as there is in the West, and we would have to be learned in all Eastern traditions in order to do the job well. There are very few scholars who have this kind of acquaintance with all the works of the East. Third, there's something to be said for knowing your own tradition before trying to understand that of other parts of the world. Many persons who today attempt to read such books as the I Ching or the Bhagavad Gita are baffled, not only because of the inherent difficulty of such works, but also because they have not learned to read well by practicing on the more accessible works, more accessible to them, of their own culture. And finally, the list is long enough as it is. One other omission requires comment. The list, being one of books, includes the names of few persons known primarily as lyric poets. Some of the writers on the list wrote lyric poems, of course, but they are best known for other, longer works. This fact is not to be taken as reflecting a prejudice on our part against lyric poetry, but we would recommend starting with a good anthology of poetry, rather than with the collected works of a single author. Palgrave's The Golden Treasury and the Oxford Book of English Verse are excellent places to start. These older anthologies should be supplemented by more modern ones. For example, Selden Rodman's One Hundred Modern Poems, a collection widely available in paperback that extends the notion of a lyric poem in interesting ways. Since reading lyric poetry requires special skill, we would also recommend any of several available handbooks on the subject. For example, Mark Van Doren's Introduction to Poetry, an anthology that also contains short discussions of how to read many famous lyrics. We have listed the books by author and title, but we have not attempted to indicate a publisher or a particular edition. Almost every work on the list is available in some form, and many are available in several editions, both paperback and hardcover. 1. Homer 9th century B.C. Iliad Odyssey 2. The Old Testament 3. Aeschylus, circa 525 to 456 B.C. Tragedies 4. Sophocles, circa 495 to 406 B.C. Tragedies 5. Herodotus, circa 485 to 425 B.C. History of the Persian Wars 6. Euripides, circa 485 to 406 B.C. Tragedies, especially Medea, Hippolytus, the Bacchae. 7. Thucydides, circa 460 to 400 B.C. History of the Peloponnesian War. 8. Hippocrates, circa 460 to 377, question mark, B.C. Medical Writings. 9. Aristophanes, 
circa 448 to 380 B.C. Comedies, especially the clouds, the birds, the frogs. 10. Plato, circa 427 to 347 B.C. Dialogues, especially the Republic, Symposium, Phaedo, Mino, Apology, Phaedrus, Protagoras, Gorgias, Sophist, Theaetetus. 11. Aristotle, 384 to 322 B.C. Works, especially Organon, Physics, Metaphysics, On the Soul, The Nicomachean Ethics, Politics, Rhetoric, Poetics. 12. Epicurus, circa 341 to 270 B.C. Letter to Herodotus, Letter to Menechius. 13. Euclid, flourished circa 300 B.C. Elements of Geometry. 14. Archimedes, circa 287 to 212 B.C. Works, especially on the equilibrium of planes, on floating bodies, the Sand Reckoner. 15. Apollonius of Perga, flourished circa 240 B.C. On Conic Sections. 16. Cicero, 106-43 B.C. Works, especially orations, on friendship, on old age. 17. Lucretius, circa 95-55 B.C. On the nature of things. 18. Virgil, 70-19 B.C. Works. 19. Horace, 65-8 B.C. Works especially Odes and Epodes, The Art of Poetry. 20. Livy, 59 B.C. to A.D. 17. History of Rome. 21. Ovid, 43 B.C. to A.D. 17. Works, especially Metamorphoses. 22. Plutarch, circa 45 to 120. Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans, Moralia. 23. Tacitus, circa 55 to 117. Histories, Annals, Agricola, Germania. 24. Nicomachus of Gerasa, flourished circa 100 AD. Introduction to Arithmetic. 25. Epictetus, circa 60 to 120. Discourses, Enchiridion, Handbook. 26. Ptolemy, circa 100 to 178. Flourished 127 to 151. Almagest. 27. Lucian, circa 120 to circa 190. Works, especially The Way to Write History, The True History, The Sale of Creeds. 28. Marcus Aurelius. 121 to 180. Meditations. 29. Galen. Circa 130 to 200. On the natural faculties. 30. The New Testament. 31. Plotinus. 205 to 270. The Enneads. 32. St. Augustine. 354 to 430. Works. Especially on the teacher. Confessions. 
The City of God, Christian Doctrine. 33. The Song of Roland, 12th Century? 34. The Nibelungenlied, 13th Century? The Volsunga Saga is the Scandinavian version of the same legend. 35. The Saga of Bunt Njal. 36. St. Thomas Aquinas, circa 1225 to 1274. Summa Theologica. 37. Dante Alighieri, 1265 to 1321. Works. Especially The New Life, On Monarchy, The Divine Comedy. 38. Geoffrey Chaucer, circa 1340 to 1400. Works. Especially Troilus and Cressida, Canterbury Tales. 39. Leonardo da Vinci. 1452-1519, Notebooks. 40. Niccolò Machiavelli, 1469-1527, The Prince, Discourses on the First Ten Books of Livy. 41. Desiderius Erasmus, circa 1469-1536, The Praise of Folly. 42. Nicolaus Copernicus, 1473 to 1543, On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. 43. Sir Thomas More, circa 1478 to 1535, Utopia. 44. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546, Three Treatises, Table Talk. 45. François Rabelais, circa 1495 to 1553. Gargantua and Pantagruel. 46. John Calvin, 1509-1564, Institutes of the Christian Religion. 47. Michel de Montaigne, 1533-1592, Essays. 48. William Gilbert, 1540-163, On the Lodestone and Magnetic Bodies. 49. Miguel de Cervantes. 1547-1616, Don Quixote. 50. Edmund Spencer, circa 1552-1599, Prothalamian, The Fairy Queen. 51. Francis Bacon, 1561-1626, Essays, Advancement of Learning, Novum Organum, New Atlantis. 52. William Shakespeare, 1564 1616. Works. 53. Galileo Galilei, 1564-1642. The Starry Messenger. Dialogues Concerning Two New Sciences. 54. Johannes Kepler, 1571-1630. Epitome of Copernican Astronomy. Concerning the Harmonies of the World. 55. William Harvey, 1578-1657 On the motion of the heart and blood in animals. On the circulation of the blood. On the generation of animals. 56. Thomas Hobbes, 1588-1679 The Leviathan. 57. René Descartes, 1596-1650 Rules for the Direction of the Mind. Discourse on Method. Geometry. Meditations on First Philosophy 
58. John Milton, 1608-1674, Works, especially the minor poems, Areopagitica, Paradise Lost, Samson Agonistes. 59. Moliere, 1622-1673, Comedies, especially The Miser, The School for Wives, The Misanthrope, The Doctor in Spite of Himself, Tartuffe. 60. Blaise Pascal, 1623-1662, The Provincial Letters, Pensee, Scientific Treatises. 61. Christian Huygens, 1629-1695, Treatise on Light. 62. Benedict de Spinoza, 1632-1677, Ethics. 63. John Locke, 1632-1704, Letter Concerning Toleration, Of Civil Government. Second Treatise in Two Treatises on Government. Essay Concerning Human Understanding. Thoughts Concerning Education. 64. Jean-Baptiste Racine, 1639-1699. Tragedies, especially Andromache, Phaedra. 65. Isaac Newton, 1642-1727. Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. Optics. 66. Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz, 1646-1716. Discourse on Metaphysics. New Essays Concerning Human Understanding. Monadology. 67. Daniel Defoe, 1660-1731. Robinson Crusoe. 68. Jonathan Swift, 1667-1745. A Tale of a Tub. Journal to Stella. Gulliver's Travels. A Modest Proposal. 69. William Congreve, 1670-1729. The Way of the World. 70. George Berkeley, 1685-1753, Principles of Human Knowledge. 71. Alexander Pope, 1688-1744, Essay on Criticism, Rape of the Lock, Essay on Man. 72. Charles de Seconda, Baron de Montesquieu, 1689-1755. Persian Letters. Spirit of Laws. 73. Voltaire, 1694-1778. Letters on the English. Candide. Philosophical Dictionary. 74. Henry Fielding, 1707-1754. Joseph Andrews. Tom Jones. 75. Samuel Johnson, 1709-1784. The Vanity of Human Wishes. Dictionary, Rasselas, The Lives of the Poets, especially the essays on Milton and Pope. 76. David Hume, 1711-1776, Treatise of Human Nature, Essays Moral and Political, An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding. 77. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712-1778, On the Origin of Inequality, On Political Economy. Emile, The Social Contract. 78. Lawrence Stern, 1713-1768. Tristram Shandy, A Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy. 79. 
Adam Smith, 1723-1790, The Theory of the Moral Sentiments, Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. 80. Immanuel Kant, 1724-1804, Critique of Pure Reason, Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals, Critique of Practical Reason, The Science of Right, Critique of Judgment, Perpetual Peace. 81. Edward Gibbon, 1737-1794, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Autobiography. 82. James Boswell, 1740-1795, Journal, especially London Journal, Life of Samuel Johnson, LLD. 83. Antoine Laurent Lavoisier, 1743-1794, Elements of Chemistry. 84. John Jay, 1745-1829, James Madison, 1751-1836, and Alexander Hamilton, 1757-184, Federalist Papers, together with the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution of the United States, and the Declaration of Independence. 85. Jeremy Bentham, 1748-1832, Introduction to the Principles of Morals and Legislation, Theory of Fictions. 86. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, 1749-1832, Faust, Poetry and Truth. 87. Jean-Baptiste Joseph Fourier, 1768-1830, Analytical Theory of Heat. 88. Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, 1770-1831, Phenomenology of Spirit, Philosophy of Right, Lectures on the Philosophy of History. 89. William Wordsworth, 1770-1850, Poems, especially Lyrical Ballads, Lucy Poems, Sonnets, The Prelude. 90. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, 1772-1834, Poems, especially Kubla Khan, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Geographia Literaria. 91. Jane Austen. 1775-1817. Pride and Prejudice. Emma. 92. Karl von Clausewitz. 1780-1831. On War. 93. Stendhal. 1783-1842. The Red and the Black. The Charterhouse of Parma. On Love. 94. George Gordon. Lord Byron. 1788-1824, Don Juan. 95. Arthur Schopenhauer, 1788-1860, Studies in Pessimism. 96. Michael Faraday, 1791-1867, Chemical History of a Candle, Experimental Researches in Electricity. 97. Charles Lyell, 1797-1875, Principles of Geology. 98. Auguste Comte, 1798-1857, The Positive Philosophy. 99. Honoré de Balzac, 1799-1850, Père Goriot, Eugène Grandet. 100. Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803-1882, Representative Men, Essays, Journal. 101. Nathaniel Hawthorne, 1804-1864, The Scarlet Letter.
102. Alexis de Tocqueville, 1805-1859, Democracy in America. 103. John Stuart Mill, 1806-1873, A System of Logic, On Liberty, Representative Government, Utilitarianism. The Subjection of Women, Autobiography. 104. Charles Darwin, 1809-1882, The Origin of Species, The Descent of Man, Autobiography. 105. Charles Dickens, 1812-1870, Works. Especially Pickwick Papers, David Copperfield, Hard Times. 106. Claude Bernard, 1813-1878, Introduction to the Study of Experimental Medicine. 107. Henry David Thoreau, 1817-1862, Civil Disobedience, Walden. 108. Karl Marx, 1818-1883, Capital, together with The Communist Manifesto. 109. George Eliot, 1819-1880, Adam Bede, Middlemarch. 110. Herman Melville, 1819-1891, Moby Dick, Billy Budd. 111. Theodor Dostoevsky, 1821-1881. Crime and Punishment, The Idiot, The Brothers Karamazov. 112. Gustav Flaubert, 1821-1880. Madame Bovary, Three Stories. 113. Henrik Ibsen, 1828-1906. Plays, especially Hedda Gabler, a Doll's House, The Wild Duck. 114. Leo Tolstoy, 1828-1910. War and Peace, Anna Karenina, What is Art? 23 Tales. 115. Mark Twain, 1835-1910. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, The Mysterious Stranger. 116. William James, 1842-1910. The Principles of Psychology. The Varieties of Religious Experience, Pragmatism, Essays in Radical Empiricism. 117. Henry James, 1843-1916. The American, The Ambassadors. 118. Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, 1844-1900. Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Beyond Good and Evil, The Genealogy of Morals, The Will to Power. 119. Jules Henri Poincaré, 1854-1912, Science and Hypothesis, Science and Method. 120. Sigmund Freud, 1856-1939, The Interpretation of Dreams, Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis, Civilization and Its Discontents, New Introductory Lectures on Psychoanalysis. 121. George Bernard Shaw, 1856-1950, Plays and Prefaces, especially Man and Superman, Major Barbara, Caesar and Cleopatra, Pygmalion, St. Joan. 112, Max Planck, 1858-1947, Origin and Development of the Quantum Theory. Where is Science Going? Scientific Autobiography. 123, Henri Bergson, 1859-1941, Time and Free Will, Matter and Memory, Creative Evolution, 
The Two Sources of Morality and Religion 124 John Dewey, 1859-1952 How We Think Democracy and Education Experience and Nature Logic, the Theory of Inquiry 125 Alfred North Whitehead, 1861-1947 An Introduction to Mathematics, Science and the Modern World The Aims of Education and Other Essays Adventures of Ideas 126. George Santayana, 1863-1952 The Life of Reason Skepticism and Animal Faith Persons and Places 127. Nikolai Lenin, 1870-1924 The State and Revolution 128. Marcel Proust, 1871-1922 Remembrance of Things Past 129. Bertrand Russell, 1872-1970 The Problems of Philosophy The Analysis of Mind An Inquiry into Meaning and Truth Human Knowledge, Its Scope and Limits 130. Thomas Mann, 1875-1955 The Magic Mountain, Joseph and His Brothers 131. Albert Einstein, 1879-1955 the Meaning of Relativity, On the Method of Theoretical Physics, The Evolution of Physics, with L. Infeld. 132. James Joyce, 1882-1941, The Dead in Dubliners, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, Ulysses. 133. Jacques Maritain, 1882-to-the-present, Art and Scholasticism, The Degrees of Knowledge, the Rights of Man and Natural Law, True Humanism. 134. Franz Kafka, 1883-1924, The Trial, The Castle. 135. Arnold Toynbee, 1889-to-the-present, A Study of History, Civilization on Trial. 136. Jean-Paul Sartre, 1905-to-the-present, Nausea, No Exit, being and Nothingness. 137. Alexander I. Solzhenitsyn, 1918 to the present. The First Circle. Cancer Ward. Appendix B. Exercises and Tests at the Four Levels of Reading. Introductory. This appendix offers a highly abbreviated sample of what reading exercises for independent study or group study are like. Obviously, the sample cannot provide a thorough or exhaustive set of exercises, such as one would expect to find in a manual or workbook. However, it can perhaps go a certain way toward suggesting what such exercises would be and how to get the most out of them. The appendix contains brief exercises and test questions at each of the four levels of reading. At the first level of reading, elementary reading, the texts used are biographical notes about two of the authors included in great books of the Western world, John Stuart Mill and Sir Isaac Newton. At the second level of reading, inspectional reading, the texts used are the tables of contents of two works included in great books of the Western world, Dante's Divine Comedy and Darwin's The Origin of Species. At the third level of reading, analytical reading, the text used is how to read a book 
itself. At the fourth level of reading, syntopical reading, the texts used are selected passages reprinted from two other works included in great books of the Western world, Aristotle's Politics and Rousseau's The Social Contract. The reader will probably find that the sample exercises at the first two levels of reading are more familiar and conventional than those at the last two levels. This appendix, unlike a more elaborate manual, can do little more than reinforce and clarify the distinctions between the various levels of reading and the differences between the various kinds of books. It cannot attempt to provide a really comprehensive and intensive exercise workbook. It has become commonplace to criticize reading exercises and test questions on the grounds that they are not scientifically standardized, that they are culturally discriminatory, that by themselves they are not reliably predictive of success in schooling or in subsequent career progress, that questions often permit of more than one appropriate or correct answer, and that for all these reasons, grading by tests is to a certain extent arbitrary. Much of this and similar criticism of the tests is valid, particularly if major decisions about school standing or placement or about employment opportunities are based exclusively on results drawn from these tests. However, many of the tests do effectively distinguish or identify degrees of competence, and they will continue to be widely employed in making academic and career judgments about individuals. Even if there were no other reasons, this reason by itself makes it desirable that the reader have some familiarity with the mechanics of these exercises and test questions. It is particularly to be noted that the texts used in most such reading exercises are selected primarily for the sake of the test questions that are based on them. Hence, the texts themselves are for the most part unrelated. Frequently they're fragments, bits and pieces of technical pedantry or mere trivia. In this appendix, merely exemplary though it be, the emphasis is quite otherwise. The texts used for practice and to provide material for testing are themselves worth reading. Indeed, they are indispensable reading for anyone who wishes to advance beyond the first levels of reading. The texts are selected, and the questions based on them are designed as tools for learning how to read what is worth reading. A word about the form of the questions used in the tests that appear in the following pages. It is customary in such tests to employ a number of different kinds of questions. There are essay questions and multiple-choice questions. An essay question, of course, requires the person being tested to respond to something he has read in an extended statement. Multiple-choice questions are, in turn, of many kinds. Usually they are presented in homogeneous groups. Sometimes a series of statements follows the reading exercise and the person being tested is asked to indicate which statement best expresses the main idea or ideas of the passage read. In other cases, the reader may be offered a choice of statements about a detail in the text, only one of which is a valid interpretation of the text, or at least is more apt than the others, or it may be the other way around, one is an incorrect choice, and the others are correct. Or a verbatim quotation may be given from the text, to discover whether the reader has taken note of it and remembered it. Sometimes, in a statement either quoted directly or simply drawn from the text, 
the reader will find a blank, indicating that one or more words that will make sense of the statement have been omitted. Then follows a list of choices, lettered or numbered, among which the person being tested is asked to choose the phrase that, when inserted in the blank, best completes the statement. Most questions may be answered directly from the passage read, but some questions require the reader to go outside the text for material that it is assumed he knows, material required to answer the question correctly. Still other questions are inferential, that is, they draw certain inferences from the text. The person taking the test is asked to select from a group of possibilities the inferences that can reasonably be drawn from the text or he may be expected to recognize and discard inferences that are spurious and have no foundation in the text. If one is faced with the task of creating a standardized test to be used widely in critical academic and career situations, then the choice of the kinds of questions and the framing of the questions themselves become critical as well. Fortunately, we do not face that kind of task in this appendix. Instead, we are merely suggesting some approaches that may be tried in a course of independent study aimed at improving one's own reading skills. We will employ in what follows most of the kinds of questions just described, not segregating the types in groups as is usually done, and some other kinds as well. Some are quite easy, others are very difficult. The difficult questions may be the most fun to try to answer. Because some of the questions are very difficult, and because we have framed them with the intention as much of causing you to reflect on what you have read as to test you on what you have read, we have in many cases given more than the customary short and cryptic answers to the questions. This is particularly so in the case of the questions in the last part of this appendix, the section dealing with syntopical reading. There we have taken the liberty of leading the reader by the hand, as it were, framing the questions in such a way as to suggest an overall interpretation of the texts read, and answering the questions as much as possible as though we were present in person. 1. Exercises and Tests at the First Level of Reading, Elementary Reading Two short biographical sketches appear in this section of the appendix. One outlines the life of John Stuart Mill, the other that of Sir Isaac Newton. The Mill sketch appears first although, of course, Newton predates Mill by nearly two centuries. The biographical sketch of Mill is reprinted from volume 43 of Great Books of the Western World. Besides the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the U.S. Constitution, and the Federalist Papers of Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, the founding documents of America, that volume contains three complete works by Mill, On Liberty, representative government, and utilitarianism. These are three of Mill's greatest works, but they by no means exhaust his writings. The subjection of women, for example, is of great contemporary interest, not only because Mill was one of the first thinkers in Western history to advocate complete equality for women, but also because of the book's trenchant style and the many insights it expresses about the relations of men and women at any time and place. At the first level of reading, speed is not of the essence. The sketch of Mill's life that follows is about 1,200 words long. We suggest that it be read at a comfortable speed, in perhaps six to ten minutes. We also suggest that you mark phrases and sentences in the text 
that especially interest you, and perhaps also make a few notes. Then try to answer the questions we have appended. John Stuart Mill, 1806-1873 Mill, in his autobiography, declared that his intellectual development was due primarily to the influence of two people, his father, James Mill, and his wife. James Mill elaborated for his son a comprehensive educational program, modeled upon the theories of Helvetius and Bentham. It was encyclopedic in scope, and equipped Mill by the time he was thirteen with the equivalent of a thorough university education. The father acted as the boy's tutor and constant companion, allowing Mill to work in the same room with him, and even to interrupt him as he was writing his History of India, or his articles for the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mill later described the result as one that made me appear as a made or manufactured man, having had a certain impress of opinion stamped upon me which I could only reproduce. The education began with Greek and arithmetic at the age of three. By the time he was eight, Mill had read through the whole of Herodotus, six dialogues of Plato, and considerable history. Before he was twelve, he had studied Euclid and algebra, the Greek and Latin poets, and some English poetry. His interest in history continued, and he even attempted writing an account of Roman government. At twelve, he was introduced to logic in Aristotle's Organon and the Latin scholastic manuals on the subject. The last year under his father's direct supervision, his thirteenth, was devoted to political economy. The son's notes later served the elder Mill in his elements of political economy. He furthered his education by a period of studies with his father's friends, reading law with Austin and economics with Ricardo, and completed it by himself with Bentham's treatise on legislation, which he felt gave him a creed, a doctrine, a philosophy, a religion, and made a different being of him. Although Mill never actually severed relations with his father, he experienced at the age of twenty a crisis in his mental history. It occurred to him to pose the question, Suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to could be completely effected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? He reported that an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered no, and he was overcome by a depression which lasted for several years. The first break in his gloom came while reading Marmontel's memoirs. I came to the passage which relates his father's death, the distressed position of the family, and the sudden inspiration by which he, then a mere boy, felt and made them feel that he would be everything to them, would supply the place of all that they had lost. He was moved to tears by the scene, and from this moment his burden grew lighter. From the time he was seventeen, Mill supported himself by working for the East India Company, where his father was an official. Although he began nominally as a clerk, he was soon promoted to assistant examiner, and for twenty years, from his father's death in 1836, 
until the company's activities were taken over by the British government. He had charge of the relations with the Indian states, which gave him wide practical experience in the problems of government. In addition to his regular employment, he took part in many activities tending to prepare public opinion for legislative reform. He, his father, and their friends formed the group known as Philosophical Radicals, which made a major contribution to the debates leading to the Reform Bill of 1832. Mill was active in exposing what he considered departures from sound principle in Parliament and the courts of justice. He wrote often for the newspapers friendly to the radical cause, helped to found and edit the Westminster Review as a radical organ, and participated in several reading and debating societies, devoted to the discussion of the contemporary intellectual and social problems. These activities did not prevent him from pursuing his own intellectual interests. He edited Bentham's Rationale of Judicial Evidence. He studied logic and science with the aim of reconciling syllogistic logic with the methods of inductive science, and published his System of Logic, 1843. At the same time, he pushed his inquiries in the field of economics. These first took the form of essays on some unsettled questions in political economy and were later given systematic treatment in the Principles of Political Economy, 1848. The development and productivity of these years he attributed to his relationship with Mrs. Harriet Taylor, who became his wife in 1851. Mill had known her for twenty years, since shortly after his crisis, and he could never praise too highly her influence upon his work. Although he published less during the seven years of his married life than at any other period of his career, he thought out and partly wrote many of his important works, including the essay On Liberty, 1859, The Thoughts on Parliamentary Reform, which later led to the Representative Government, 1861, and Utilitarianism, 1863. He attributed to her especially his understanding of the human side of the abstract reforms he advocated. After her death, he stated, Her memory is to me a religion, and her approbation the standard by which, summing up as it does all worthiness, I endeavor to regulate my life. Mill devoted a large part of his last years directly to political activity. In addition to his writings, he was one of the founders of the first women's suffrage society, and in 1865 consented to become a member of Parliament. Voting with the radical wing of the Liberal Party, he took an active part in the debates on Disraeli's Reform Bill and promoted the measures which he had long advocated, such as the representation of women, the reform of London government, and the alteration of land tenure in Ireland. Largely because of his support of unpopular measures, he was defeated for re-election. He retired to his cottage in Avignon, which had been built so that he might be close to the grave of his wife, and died there May 8, 1873. Note that the questions in these tests are not all of the same type. There are several kinds of multiple-choice questions, and some essay questions as well. Some questions call for information not included in the passage you have read, the background information a capable reader brings to whatever he reads. 
Select all the answers which seem to you to be valid, whether they are stated or implied in the text, or simply seem to you true on the basis of logic or your background information. Test A. Questions about the biographical sketch of John Stuart Mill. 1. During the latter part of Mill's life, England was ruled by A. George IV, B. William IV, C. Victoria, D. Edward VII. 2. Mill's early education was largely designed by A. Jeremy Bentham, B. His father, James Mill, C. The Encyclopedia Britannica for which his father wrote articles, D. Marmontel's Memoir. 3. By the time he was eight years old, Mill had read A. Herodotus, B. Six Dialogues of Plato, C. Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. 4. Mill went to work for the East India Company to support himself at the age of A. 14, B. 17, C. 21, D. 25. 5. At the age of 20, Mill experienced A. A quarrel with his father. B. A crisis in his mental history. C. A. Crisis quoted in his mental history. D. A love affair with a married woman. 6. Mill, his father, and their friends called themselves philosophical radicals because they believed A. In the overthrow of the government by violence. B. That reforms should be made in parliamentary representation. C. That the study of philosophy should be dropped from college curriculums. 7. Among the authors whom Mill read as a young man and who probably influenced his thinking were A. Aristotle B. Dewey C. Ricardo D. Bentham 8. Which of these well-known works of Mill is not mentioned in the text? A. On Liberty B. Representative Government C. Utilitarianism D. The Subjection of Women 9. Were he alive today, is it likely or not likely that Mill would be A. A supporter of the women's liberation movement Likely? Not likely B. In favor of universal education Likely? Or not likely C. An active segregationist Likely? Not likely D. A strong advocate of censorship of newspapers and other mass media Likely? Not likely 10. It can be inferred from the text that Mill considered his wife, the former Mrs. Harriet Taylor, both during their marriage and after her death, to be A. His severest critic B. His best friend C. His greatest enemy D. His muse Answers to questions in Test A 1. C 2. B If you said A and B, you would not really be wrong. 3. A and B 4. B 5. C Is it pedantic to say that B 
is an incorrect answer? Would the situation be different if C were not available as an answer? 6. B. 7. A, C, and D. The text indicates that Bentham was the most influential. 8. D. 9. A and B. Likely. C and D, not likely. 10. A, B, and D. Sir Isaac Newton is of enormous interest to scholars and historians of science at the present day. There are two main reasons for this. The first is a commonplace. By combining analysis with experimentation, by combining theorizing with systematic observation of natural phenomena, men like Galileo and Newton launched an intellectual revolution and helped to usher in our modern age of science. Not only did they discover truths about the physical world that continue to be relevant and important, but they also developed new methods of studying nature that have proved to be of wide usefulness in many areas of study and research. That, as we said, is a commonplace. That aspect of Newton's life and achievement has been known and discussed for centuries. More recently, Newton has become the center of a worldwide study of the character of genius. Scholars and students of science and literature endlessly rank scientists and authors as more or less great, or on a scale ranging from extraordinary to genius. There's a considerable body of learned opinion that maintains that Newton was the supreme genius, the greatest intellect of all time. Many efforts have been made to characterize and account for genius. Precocity, the ability to concentrate, acute intuitiveness, rigorous analytical capacity, by terms such as these, genius is described. All these terms seem to apply to Isaac Newton. The biographical sketch of Newton that follows is reprinted from volume 34 of Great Books of the Western World. That volume contains the texts of Newton's Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, often known as Newton's Principia, and of his Optics. It also contains the text of the Treatise on Light of the Dutch physicist Christian Huygens. The biography of Newton is somewhat longer than the one of Mill, therefore take ten to twelve minutes to read it. As before, Mark the most striking passages and make notes. Then try to answer the questions that follow. Sir Isaac Newton, 1642 to 1727. Newton was born at Woolsthorpe, Lincolnshire, on Christmas Day, 1642. His father, a small farmer, died a few months before his birth. And when in 1645 his mother married the rector of North Witham, Newton was left with his maternal grandmother at Woolsthorpe. After having acquired the rudiments of education at small schools close by, Newton was sent at the age of twelve to the grammar school at Grantham, where he lived in the house of an apothecary. By his own account, Newton was at first an indifferent scholar, until a successful fight with another boy aroused a spirit of emulation and led to his becoming first in the school. He displayed very early a taste and aptitude for mechanical contrivances. He made windmills, water clocks, kites, and sundials, and he is said to have invented a four-wheel carriage, which was to be moved by the rider. After the death of her second husband in 1656, 
Newton's mother returned to Woolsthorpe and removed her eldest son from school so that he might prepare himself to manage the farm. But it was soon evident that his interests were not in farming, and upon the advice of his uncle, the rector of Burton Coggles, he was sent to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he matriculated in 1661 as one of the boys who performed menial services in return for their expenses. Although there is no record of his formal progress as a student, Newton is known to have read widely in mathematics and mechanics. His first reading at Cambridge was in the optical works of Kepler. He turned to Euclid because he was bothered by his inability to comprehend certain diagrams in a book on astrology he had bought at a fair. Finding its propositions self-evident, he put it aside as a trifling book, until his teacher, Isaac Barrow, induced him to take up the book again. It appears to have been the study of Descartes' geometry, which inspired him to do original mathematical work. In a small commonplace book, kept by Newton as an undergraduate, there are several articles on angular sections and the squaring of curves, several calculations about musical notes, geometrical problems from Vieta and Van Schooten, annotations out of Wallace's Arithmetic of Infinities, together with observations on refraction, on the grinding of spherical optic glasses, on the errors of lenses, and on the extraction of all kinds of roots. It was around the time of his taking the bachelor's degree, in 1665, that Newton discovered the binomial theorem and made the first notes on his discovery of the method of fluxions. When the Great Plague spread from London to Cambridge in 1665, college was dismissed, and Newton retired to the farm in Lincolnshire, where he conducted experiments in optics and chemistry, and continued his mathematical speculations. From this forced retirement in 1666, he dated his discovery of the gravitational theory. In the same year I began to think of gravity extending to the orb of the moon, compared the force requisite to keep the moon in her orb with the force of gravity at the surface of the earth, and found them to answer pretty nearly. At about the same time, his work on optics led to his explanation of the composition of white light. Of the work he accomplished in these years, Newton later remarked, All this was in the two years of 1665 and 1666, for in those years I was in the prime of my age for invention, and minded mathematics and philosophy more than at any time since. On the reopening of Trinity College in 1667, Newton was elected a fellow, and two years later, a little before his twenty-seventh birthday, he was appointed Lucasian Professor of Mathematics, succeeding his friend and teacher, Dr. Barrow. Newton had already built a reflecting telescope in 1668. The second telescope of his making he presented to the Royal Society in December 1671. Two months later, as a fellow of the Society, he communicated his discovery on light and thereby started a controversy which was to run for many years and to involve Hooke, Lucas, Linus, and others. Newton, who always found controversy distasteful, blamed my own imprudence for parting with so substantial a blessing as my quiet 
to run after a shadow. His papers on optics, the most important of which were communicated to the Royal Society between 1672 and 1676, were collected in the optics, 1704. It was not until 1684 that Newton began to think of making known his work on gravity. Hooke, Haley, and Sir Christopher Wren had independently come to some notion of the law of gravity, but were not having any success in explaining the orbits of the planets. In that year, Haley consulted Newton on the problem, and was astonished to find that he had already solved it. Newton submitted to him four theorems and seven problems, which proved to be the nucleus of his major work. In some seventeen or eighteen months, during 1685 and 1686, he wrote in Latin the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Newton thought for some time of suppressing the third book, and it was only Halley's insistence that preserved it. Halley also took upon himself the cost of publishing the work in 1687, after the Royal Society proved unable to meet its cost. The book caused great excitement throughout Europe, and in 1689 Huygens, at that time the more famous scientist, came to England to make the personal acquaintance of Newton. While working upon the principles, Newton had begun to take a more prominent part in university affairs. For his opposition to the attempt of James II to repudiate the oath of allegiance and supremacy at the university, Newton was elected parliamentary member for Cambridge. On his return to the university, he suffered a serious illness which incapacitated him for most of 1692 and 1693 and caused considerable concern to his friends and fellow workers. After his recovery, he left the university to work for the government. Through his friends Locke, Wren, and Lord Halifax, Newton was made Warden of the Mint in 1695, and four years later Master of the Mint, a position he held until his death. For the last thirty years of his life, Newton produced little original mathematical work. He kept his interest and his skill in the subject. In 1696 he solved overnight a problem offered by Bernoulli in a competition for which six months had been allowed. And again in 1716 he worked in a few hours a problem which Leibniz had proposed in order to feel the pulse of the English analysts. He was much occupied to his own distress with two mathematical controversies, one regarding the astronomical observations of the Astronomer Royal, and the other with Leibniz regarding the invention of calculus. He also worked on revisions for a second edition of the Principles, which appeared in 1713. Newton's scientific work brought him great fame. He was a popular visitor at the court and was knighted in 1705. Many honors came to him from the continent, he was in correspondence with all the leading men of science, and visitors became so frequent as to prove a serious discomfort. Despite his fame, Newton maintained his modesty. Shortly before his death, he remarked, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. From an early period of his life, Newton had been much interested in theological studies, 
and before 1690 had begun to study the prophecies. In that year he wrote, in the form of a letter to Locke, an historical account of two notable corruptions of the Scriptures regarding two passages on the Trinity. He left in manuscript observations on the prophecies of Daniel and the Apocalypse and other works of exegesis. After 1725, Newton's health was much impaired, and his duties at the Mint were discharged by a deputy. In February 1727, he presided for the last time at the Royal Society, of which he had been president since 1703, and died on March 20, 1727, in his 85th year. He was buried in Westminster Abbey, after lying in state in the Jerusalem Chamber. Test B. Questions about the biography of Sir Isaac Newton. 1. Before Newton gained admission to Trinity College, Cambridge, he took special interest in a. Politics, b. Theology, c. Mechanical Devices, d. Science and Mathematics. 2. Newton was knighted by a. King Charles II, 1660-1685, b. King James II, 1685-1688, c. Queen Anne, 1702-1714, d. King George I, 1714-1727. 3. When Trinity College was closed for two years, from 1665 to 1667, as a consequence of the spreading of the Great Plague from London to Cambridge, Newton, along with many other students, took an extended holiday on the continent. True or false? 4. Newton was elected to Parliament on the basis of a. His handling of anti-royalist rioting among the students, b. His opposition to James II's attempt to repudiate the oath of allegiance and supremacy, c. His handling of student and faculty panic in the face of the spread of the Great Plague from London to Cambridge, 5. During the latter part of his life, Newton was occupied and distressed by his involvement in controversies regarding a. Astronomical observations of the Astronomer Royal, b. The invention of the calculus, c. The prophecies of Daniel. 6. Newton originally wrote his mathematical principles of natural philosophy in a. Greek, b. Latin, c. English. 7. Among other matters, the work explained a. Why apples fall, b. The orbits of the planets, c. How to square a circle, d. In what respects God is a geometrician. 8. Optics is a. The general name given to the study of light, the radiant energy that, among other things, by its action upon the organs of vision, enables man to see. b the general name for the study of the eye in man and other animals. c. The technology of the production of the lens and its use in telescopes. 9. Newton, in his optics, a. Proved that light travels at 300,000 kilometers an hour. b. Revealed the composition of white light. c. Described how white light can be broken up by a prism into the colors of the spectrum. D. Outlined some military uses of the telescope. 10. 
As an old man, Newton remarked, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Comment on this statement in 250 words. Answers to Test B 1. C 2. C 3. False 4. B 5. A and B 6. B 7. B The first answer, why apples fall, might have been considered correct if it had been phrased, how apples fall although, of course, there is no mention of apples in the Principia. The point is that the work describes gravity and expounds its operation, but it does not say why it operates. 8. A. 9. B and C. 10. This striking statement has impressed generations of Newton idolaters. In commenting on it, you probably discussed the modesty of its author. Did you also make any mention of the metaphor that Newton employs? It is a memorable one. You have now completed the two-part reading exercise at the first level of reading. You will, of course, have noted that, as we reminded you they would, the questions draw not only on the texts read, but also on historical and other information not explicitly included in the text. The capable reader, even at this first level, can bring useful information to bear on whatever he reads. In general, the better informed he is, the better he reads. If you have done reasonably well in answering the test questions, it must be obvious to you that you are a pretty well-rounded reader and that you have reached and even exceeded the standards set for elementary reading. We hope you have also recognized that these exercises and tests were designed not only to improve your skill as a reader, but also to help you learn something worth knowing, or to apply something you already know to what you read. 2. Exercises and Tests at the Second Level of Reading Inspectional Reading The tables of contents of two works included in great books of the Western world are used as texts for reading and testing in this section of Appendix B. In addition, Short biographical sketches of their authors, Dante and Darwin, are also reprinted here, for the reader's information, and also as material from which test questions are drawn. The biography of Dante and the table of contents of his Divine Comedy are taken from Volume 21 of Great Books of the Western World. That volume contains only the Divine Comedy, but Dante wrote other works, in prose and verse, of great interest and beauty, although only his comedy, the adjective divine, was added after his death, is widely read today. You will recall from chapter 4 that there are two steps in inspectional reading. The first we call pre-reading or skimming, the second superficial reading. As we do not have the entire text of the divine comedy before us for this sample reading exercise, we will treat the table of contents of the work, given here in its entirety as though it were a book in itself. That is, we suggest that you spend less than ten minutes, here speed is of the essence, systematically skimming the whole table of contents, 
after which you can try answering some questions. And then we will ask you to read the table of contents over again superficially, that is, in about twenty minutes, and then answer some more questions. The total reading time to be devoted to the table of contents of the Divine Comedy is therefore half an hour. Considering that scholars have devoted thirty years of their lives to the Divine Comedy, we dare say that thirty minutes of inspection is indeed superficial. At the same time, it is not presumptuous or vain. One can learn a lot about this great poem in half an hour. And as to those for whom Dante and the Divine Comedy are vague names at best, a careful inspection of the table of contents may induce them to inspect the whole work, or even lead them on to read the whole analytically at the third level of reading. Before giving the table of contents your first inspection, before either pre-reading or systematically skimming it, read the biographical note about Dante in a few minutes. It will help you understand what Dante is planning and doing in the Divine Comedy, and also help you to answer some of our questions. Dante Alighieri, 1265-1321 Dante Alighieri was born in Florence about the middle of May, 1265. The city, then under its first democratic constitution, was sharply divided between the papal party of the Guelphs and the imperial party of the Ghibellines. Dante's family were adherents of the Guelph faction, and when Dante was only a few months old, the Guelphs obtained decisive victory at the Battle of Benevento. Although of noble ancestry, the Alighieri family was neither wealthy nor particularly prominent. It seems probable that Dante received his early education at the Franciscan school of Santa Croce. He evidently owed much to the influence of Brunetto Latini, the philosopher and scholar who figured largely in the councils of the Florentine commune. Before Dante was twenty, he began writing poetry, and became associated with the Italian poets of the sweet new style, who exalted their love and their ladies in philosophical verse. Dante's lady, whom he celebrated with singular devotion, was a certain Beatrice. According to Boccaccio's Life of Dante, she was Beatrice Portinari, daughter of a Florentine citizen, who married a wealthy banker and died when she was but twenty-four. Dante first sang of Beatrice in the Vita Nuova, 1292, a sequence of poems with prose comment, in which he recounts the story of his love, of the first meeting when they were both nine years of age, of the exchange of greetings which passed between them on May Day, 1283, and of Beatrice's death in 1290. Upon turning thirty, Dante became actively involved in Florentine politics. The constitution of the city was based upon the guilds, and Dante, upon his enrollment in the Guild of Physicians and Apothecaries, which also included book dealers, became eligible for office. He participated in the deliberations of the councils, served on a special embassy, and in 1300 was elected one of the six priors that governed the city. The former struggle between the Guelphs and Ghibellines had appeared in new form, in the conflict between the whites and the blacks. As one of the priors, Dante seems to have been influential in the move to lessen factionalism by banishing from Florence the rival leaders, including among the blacks his wife's relative, Corso Donati, and among the whites his first friend, the poet Guido Cavalcanti.
Despite the opposition of Dante and the white leaders to papal interference in Florentine affairs, Pope Boniface VIII, in 1301, invited Charles of Valois, brother of King Philip of France, to enter Florence to settle the differences between the two factions. Actually, he assisted the blacks to seize power, and more than 600 whites were condemned to exile. In 1302, Dante, with four others of the white party, was charged with corruption in office. He was condemned to pay a fine of 5,000 florins within three days or lose his property, exiled for two years, and denied the right ever again to hold public office. Three months later, upon his refusal to pay the fine, Dante was condemned to be burned alive if he should come within the power of the Republic. After it was the pleasure of the citizens of the most beautiful and most famous daughter of Rome, Florence, to chase me forth from her sweet bosom, Dante writes of his exile in the Convivio, I have gone through almost every region to which this tongue of ours extends, showing against my will the wound of fortune. It is recorded that Dante attended a meeting at San Godenzo, where an alliance was formed between the whites in exile and the Ghibellines. But he does not seem to have been present in 1304, when the combined forces were defeated at Lastra. Perhaps he had already separated himself from the evil and foolish company of his fellow exiles, formed a party by himself, and found his first refuge and hostelry at the court of the Della Scalas in Verona. Probably during the following years he spent time at Bologna, and later at Padua, where Giotto is said to have entertained him. Toward the end of 1306 he was the guest of the Malaspinas in Lunigiana, and acted as their ambassador in making peace with the Bishop of Luni. Sometime after this date he may have visited Paris and attended the university there. During the early years of his exile Dante appears to have studied in those subjects which gained him the title of philosopher and theologian, as well as poet. In the Convivio, probably written between 13.5 and 13.8, he tells how, after the death of Beatrice, he turned to Cicero's De Amicitia and the Consolatio Philosophiae of Boethius, which awoke in him the love of philosophy. To sing its praises he began his Convivio, which he intended to be a kind of treasury of universal knowledge, in the form of poems connected by lengthy prose commentaries. At the same time, he worked upon the De Vulgari Eloquentia, a Latin treatise in which he defended the use of Italian as a literary language. The election of Henry of Luxembourg as emperor in 1308 stirred Dante's political hopes. When Henry entered Italy in 1310 at the head of an army, Dante, in an epistle to the princes and people of Italy, hailed the coming of a deliverer. At Milan he paid personal homage to Henry as his sovereign. When Florence, in alliance with King Robert of Naples, prepared to resist the emperor, Dante, in a second epistle, denounced them for their obstinacy and prophesied their doom. In a third epistle, he upbraided the emperor himself for his delay and urged him on against Florence. It was probably during this period that he wrote his De Monarchia, an intellectual defense of the emperor as the sovereign of the temporal order. The death of Henry in 1313, after a year or so of ineffectual fighting, brought an end to the political aspirations of Dante and his party.
the city of Florence in 1311, and again in 1315, renewed his condemnation. After Henry's death, Dante passed the rest of his life under the protection of various lords of Lombardy, Tuscany, and the Romagna. According to one tradition, he retired for a time to the monastery of Santa Croce di Fonte Avellana in the Apennines, where he worked on the Divine Comedy, which may have been planned as early as 1292. He was almost certainly, for a time, at the court of Congrande della Scala, to whom he dedicated the Paradiso. In 1315, Florence issued a general recall of exiles. Dante refused to pay the required fine and to bear the brand of oblation, feeling that such a return would derogate from his fame and honor. To the end of his life, he appears to have hoped that his comedy would finally open the gates of the city to him. The last few years of the poet's life were spent at Ravenna, under the patronage of Guido de Palenta, a nephew of Francesca de Rimini. Dante's daughter, Beatrice, was a nun in that city, and one of his sons held a benefice there. His wife seems to have resided in Florence throughout his exile. Dante was greatly esteemed at Ravenna and enjoyed a congenial circle of friends. Here he completed the Divine Comedy, and wrote two eclogues in Latin, which indicate that a certain contentment surrounded his closing days. Returning from a diplomatic mission to Venice on behalf of his patron, he caught a fever and died September 14, 1321. He was buried at Ravenna before the door of the principal church with the highest honors and in the habit of a poet and a great philosopher. Now spend about ten minutes pre-reading or skimming the following table of contents systematically. The text used here is that of the Charles Eliot Norton translation. Other translators would, of course, present the table of contents in somewhat different terms. Table of Contents of the Divine Comedy Hell Canto 1 Dante, astray in a wood, reaches the foot of a hill which he begins to ascend. He is hindered by three beasts. He turns back and is met by Virgil, who proposes to guide him into the eternal world. Canto 2 Dante, doubtful of his own powers, is discouraged at the outset. Virgil cheers him by telling him that he has been sent to his aid by a blessed spirit from heaven, who revealed herself as Beatrice. Dante casts off fear, and the poets proceed. Canto 3 the gate of hell. Virgil leads Dante in. The punishment of those who had lived without infamy and without praise. Acheron and the sinners on its bank. Charon, earthquake, Dante swoons. Canto 4. The further side of Acheron. Virgil leads Dante into limbo, the first circle of hell, containing the spirits of those who lived virtuously but without faith in Christ greeting of Virgil by his fellow poets. They enter a castle where are the shades of ancient worthies. After seeing them, Virgil and Dante depart. Canto V The second circle, that of carnal sinners. Minos, shades renowned of old. Francesca da Rimini. Canto VI The third circle, that of the gluttonous. Cerberus, Chiaco. Canto VII 
the fourth circle, that of the avaricious and the prodigal, Pluto, fortune, the sticks, the fifth circle, that of the wrathful, Canto Eight, the fifth circle, Phlegius and his boat, passage of the sticks, Filippo Argenti, the city of Dis, the demons refuse entrance to the poets. Canto Nine, the city of Dis, Erichtho, the three furies, the heavenly messenger, the sixth circle, that of the heretics. Canto Ten, the sixth circle, Farinata degli Uberti, Cavalcanti, Cavalcanti, Frederick the Second. Canto Eleven, the sixth circle, Tomb of Pope Anastasius. Discourse of Virgil on the Divisions of the Lower Hell. Canto Twelve, The Seventh Circle, That of the Violent, First Round, Those Who Do Violence to Others, The Minotaur, The Centaurs, Chiron, Nessus, The River of Boiling Blood and the Sinners in It. Canto Thirteen, The Seventh Circle, Second Round, Those Who Have Done Violence to Themselves and to Their Goods, the Wood of Self-Murderers, The Harpies, Pierre de Lovigne, Lano of Siena and others. Canto 14, The Seventh Circle, Third Round, Those Who Have Done Violence to God, The Burning Sand, Caponeus, Figure of the Old Man in Crete, The Rivers of Hell. Canto 15, The Seventh Circle, Third Round, those who have done violence to nature, Brunetto Latini, Prophecies of Misfortune to Dante, Canto 16, The Seventh Circle, Third Round, Those who have done violence to nature, Guido Guerra, Tegiaio Aldobrandi, and Jacopo Rusticucci, The Roar of Phlegathon as it pours downward, The Cord Thrown into the Abyss, Canto 17, the Seventh Circle, Third Round, Those Who Have Done Violence to Art, Garion, The Usurers, Descent to the Eighth Circle, Canto Eighteen, The Eighth Circle, That of the Fraudulent, First Pouch, Panders and Seducers, Venedico, Caccianimico, Jason, Second Pouch, False Flatterers, Alicio Interminei, Thais. Canto 19. The Eighth Circle, Third Pouch. Simonists. Pope Nicholas III. Canto 20. The Eighth Circle, Fourth Pouch. Diviners, Soothsayers and Magicians. Amphiaraos. Tiresias. Aruns. Manto. Eurypolis. Michael Scott. Asdente. Canto 21. The Eighth Circle, Fifth Pouch, Baritors, a Magistrate of Luca, the Malabranche, Parley with them. Canto 22, the Eighth Circle, Fifth Pouch, Baritors, Chiampolo of Navarre, Fra Gomita, Michel Zanch, Frey of the Malabranche. Canto 23, the Eighth Circle, Escape from the Fifth Pouch, the Sixth Pouch, Hypocrites in cloaks of gilded lead, 
Jovial Friars, Caiaphas, Annas, Frate Catalano. Canto 24, The Eighth Circle. The poets climb from the sixth pouch, seventh pouch filled with serpents, by which thieves are tormented. Vani Fucci, Prophecy of Calamity to Dante. Canto 25, The Eighth Circle, Seventh Pouch, Fraudulent Thieves, Cacus, Agnello Brunelleschi, and others. Canto 26, The Eighth Circle, Eighth Pouch, Fraudulent Counselors, Ulysses and Diomed. Canto 27, The Eighth Circle, Eighth Pouch, Fraudulent Counselors, Guido da Montefeltro. Canto 28, The Eighth Circle, Ninth Pouch, Sowers of Discord and Schism, Mohammed and Ali, Fra Dolcino, Pierre de Medicina, Curio, Mosca, Bertrand de Born. Canto 29, The Eighth Circle, Ninth Pouch, Gary del Bello, Tenth Pouch, Falsifiers of All Sorts, Alchemists, Griffolino Avarezzo, Capocchio. Canto 30, The Eighth Circle, Tenth Pouch. False Personators, False Moneyers, and the False in Words. Mira, Gianni Schicchi, Master Adam, Sinon of Troy. Canto 31, The Eighth Circle, Giants, Nimrod, Ephialtes. Antaeus sets the poets down in the Ninth Circle. Canto 32, The Ninth Circle. That of Traitors, First Ring, Cana, Counts of Mangona, Camicion de Pazzi, Second Ring, Antenora, Boca della Abati, Buoso da Duera, Count Ugolino. Canto 33, The Ninth Circle, Second Ring, Antenora, Count Ugolino, Third Ring, Ptolomea, Frate Alberigo, Branca Dioria. Canto 34, The Ninth Circle, Fourth Ring. Eudica, Lucifer, Judas, Brutus, and Cassius. Center of the Universe. Passage from Hell. Ascent to the Surface of the Southern Hemisphere. Purgatory. Canto 1, The New Theme. Invocation to the Muses. Dawn of Easter on the Shore of Purgatory, The Four Stars, Cato, The Cleansing of Dante's Face from the Stains of Hell, Canto Two, Sunrise, The Poets on the Shore, Coming of a Boat Guided by an Angel, Bearing Souls to Purgatory, Their Landing, Casella and His Song, Cato Hurries the Souls to the Mountain, Canto Three, Anti-Purgatory, Souls of those who have died in contumacy of the Church. Manfred. Canto 4, Antipurgatory. Ascent to a shelf of the mountain. The negligent, who postponed repentance to the last hour. Balacqua. Canto 5, Antipurgatory. Spirits who had delayed repentance and met with death by violence, but died repentant. Jacopo del Casaro. Buonconte de Montefeltro, Pia de Ptolemei. Canto the Sixth, Antipurgatory. More spirits who had deferred repentance until they were overtaken by a violent death. 
efficacy of prayer, Sordello, apostrophe to Italy. Canto 7. Virgil makes himself known to Sordello. Sordello leads the poets to the valley of the princes who have been negligent of salvation. He points them out by name. Canto 8. Valley of the Princes. Two Guardian Angels. Nino Visconti, the Serpent, Corrado Malaspina. Canto 9. Slumber and Dream of Dante. The Eagle, Lucia, the Gate of Purgatory, the Angelic Gatekeeper. Seven peas inscribed on Dante's forehead. Entrance to the First Ledge. Canto 10. Purgatory Proper. First Ledge. The Proud. Examples of Humility Sculptured on the Rock. Canto 11. First Ledge. The Proud. Prayer. Umberto Aldobrandeschi. Odorisi di Agubio. Provenzan Salvani. Canto 12. First Ledge. The Proud. Instances of the punishment of pride graven on the pavement. Meeting with an angel who removes one of the peas. Ascent to the second ledge. Canto 13, second ledge. The envious. Examples of love. The shades in haircloth and with sealed eyes. Sapia of Siena. Canto 14, second ledge. The envious. Guido del Duca. Rinieri di Calboli. Instances of the punishment of envy. Canto 15, second ledge. The envious. An angel removes the second P from Dante's forehead. Discourse concerning the sharing of good. Ascent to the third ledge. The wrathful. Vision of examples of forbearance. Canto 16, third ledge. The wrathful. Marco Lombardo. His discourse on free will and the corruption of the world. Canto 17, third ledge. The wrathful. Issue from the smoke. Vision of instances of the punishment of anger. Ascent to the fourth ledge, where sloth is purged. Second nightfall in purgatory. Virgil explains how love is the root alike of virtue and of sin. Canto 18, fourth ledge, the slothful. Discourse of Virgil on love and free will. Throng of spirits running in haste to redeem their sin. Examples of zeal. The Abbot of San Zeno, Instances of the Punishment of Sloth. Dante Falls Asleep. Canto 19, Fourth Ledge. Dante Dreams of the Siren. The Angel of the Pass. Ascent to the Fifth Ledge, the Avaricious. Pope Adrian V. Canto 20, Fifth Ledge, the Avaricious. The Spirits Celebrate Examples of Poverty and Bounty. Hugh Capet. His Discourse on His Descendants, Instances of the Punishment of Avarice, Trembling of the Mountain. Canto 21, Fifth Ledge, The Shade of Stasius, Cause of the Trembling of the Mountain. Stasius does honor to Virgil. Canto 22, Ascent to the Sixth Ledge, Discourse of Stasius and Virgil. Entrance to the Ledge, the Gluttonous, the Mystic Tree, Examples of Temperance Canto 23, Sixth Ledge, The Gluttonous Torresi Donati Nella, Rebuke of the Women of Florence Canto 24, Sixth Ledge, The Gluttonous Torresi Donati, 
Picarda Donati, Bonagionta of Luca, Pope Martin IV, Ubaldon dalla Pila, Bonifacio, Messe Marchesi, Prophecy of Bonagionta concerning Gentuca, and a Forese concerning Corso di Donati. Second Mystic Tree. Instances of the Punishment of Gluttony. The Angel of the Pass. Canto 25. Ascent to the Seventh Ledge. Discourse of Statius on Generation, the Infusion of the Soul into the Body, and the Corporal Semblance of Souls after Death. The Seventh Ledge, the Lustful. The Mode of Their Purification. Examples of Chastity. Canto 26. Seventh Ledge, the Lustful. Sinners in the Fire, Going in Opposite Directions. Instances of the Punishment of Lust. Guido Guinicelli, Arno Daniel. Canto 27, Seventh Ledge, The Lustful, Passage Through the Flames, Stairway in the Rock, Night Upon the Stairs, Dream of Dante, Morning, Ascent to the Earthly Paradise, Last Words of Virgil. Canto 28, The Earthly Paradise, The Forest, A Lady Gathering Flowers on the Bank of a Little Stream, Discourse with her concerning the nature of the place. Canto 29, The Earthly Paradise, Mystic Procession or Triumph of the Church. Canto 30, The Earthly Paradise, Beatrice Appears, Departure of Virgil, Reproof of Dante by Beatrice. Canto 31, The Earthly Paradise, Reproachful Discourse of Beatrice and Confession of Dante. Passage of Lethe. Appeal of the Virtues to Beatrice, Her Unveiling. Canto 32, The Earthly Paradise, Return of the Triumphal Procession, The Chariot Bound to the Mystic Tree, Sleep of Dante, His Waking to Find the Triumph Departed, Transformation of the Chariot, The Harlot and the Giant. Canto 33, The Earthly Paradise, Prophecy of Beatrice concerning one who shall restore the empire. Her discourse with Dante. The river Unoe. Dante drinks of it and is fit to ascend to heaven. Paradise. Canto 1. Proem. Invocation. Beatrice and Dante transhumanized ascend through the sphere of fire toward the moon. Beatrice explains the cause of their ascent. Canto 2. Proem. Ascent to the moon, the cause of spots on the moon, influence of the heavens. Canto 3. The heaven of the moon. Spirits whose vows had been broken. Picarda Donati, the Empress Constance. Canto 4. Doubts of Dante respecting the justice of heaven and the abode of the blessed, solved by Beatrice. Question of Dante as to the possibility of reparation for broken vows. Canto 5. The Sanctity of Vows and the Seriousness with which they are to be made or changed. Ascent to the Heaven of Mercury. The Shade of Justinian. Canto 6. Justinian tells of his own life. The Story of the Roman Eagle. Spirits in the Planet Mercury. Romeo. Canto 7. Discourse of Beatrice. The Fall of Man. The Scheme of His Redemption. Canto 8. Ascent to the Heaven of Venus. 
Spirits of Lovers, Charles Martel, his discourse on the order and the varieties in mortal things. Canto 9, The Planet Venus, Conversation of Dante with Cunizza da Romano, with Folco of Marseille, Rahab, Avarice of the Papal Court, Canto 10, Ascent to the Sun, Spirits of the Wise and the Learned in Theology, St. Thomas Aquinas, he names to Dante those who surround him. Canto 11. The Vanity of Worldly Desires. St. Thomas Aquinas undertakes to solve two doubts perplexing Dante. He narrates the life of St. Francis of Assisi. Canto 12. Second Circle of the Spirits of Wise Religious Men, Doctors of the Church, and Teachers. St. Bonaventura narrates the life of St. Dominic, and tells the names of those who form the circle with him. Canto 13. St. Thomas Aquinas speaks again and explains the relation of the wisdom of Solomon to that of Adam and of Christ and declares the vanity of human judgment. Canto 14. At the prayer of Beatrice, Solomon tells of the glorified body of the blessed after the last judgment, ascent to the heaven of Mars, spirits of the soldiery of Christ in the form of a cross with the figure of Christ thereon, hymn of the spirits. Canto 15. Dante is welcomed by his ancestor, Cacciaguida. Cacciaguida tells of his family and of the simple life of Florence in the old days. Canto 16. The Boast of Blood. Cacciaguida continues his discourse concerning the old and the new Florence. Canto 17. Dante questions Cacciaguida as to his fortunes. Cacciaguida replies, foretelling the exile of Dante and the renown of his poem. Canto 18. The Spirits in the Cross of Mars. Ascent to the Heaven of Jupiter. Words shaped in light upon the planet by the spirits. Denunciation of the avarice of the popes. Canto 19. The Voice of the Eagle. It speaks of the mysteries of divine justice, of the necessity of faith for salvation, of the sins of certain kings. Canto 20. The Song of the Just, Princes Who Have Loved Righteousness in the Eye of the Eagle, Spirits Once Pagans in Bliss, Faith and Salvation, Predestination, Canto 21, Ascent to the Heaven of Saturn, Spirits of Those Who Had Given Themselves to Devout Contemplation, The Golden Stairway, St. Peter Damien, Predestination, The Luxury of Modern Prelates, Dante Alarmed, by a cry of the spirits. Canto 22. Beatrice reassures Dante. St. Benedict appears. He tells of the founding of his order and of the falling away of its brethren. Beatrice and Dante ascend to the starry heaven, the constellation of the twins, sight of the earth. Canto 23. The triumph of Christ. Canto 24. St. Peter examines Dante concerning faith and approves his answer. Canto 25. St. James examines Dante concerning hope. St. John appears with a brightness so dazzling as to deprive Dante for the time of sight. Canto 26. St. John examines Dante concerning love. Dante's sight restored. Adam appears and answers questions put to him by Dante. Canto 27. Denunciation by St. Peter of his degenerate successors. 
Dante gazes upon the earth. Ascent of Beatrice and Dante to the crystalline heaven. Its nature. Beatrice rebukes the covetousness of mortals. Canto 28. The Heavenly Hierarchy. Canto 29. Discourse of Beatrice concerning the creation and nature of the angels. She reproves the presumption and foolishness of preachers. Canto 30. Ascent to the Empyrean, the River of Light, the Celestial Rose, the Seat of Henry VII, the Last Words of Beatrice. Canto 31. The Rose of Paradise, St. Bernard, Prayer to Beatrice, the Glory of the Blessed Virgin. Canto 32. St. Bernard describes the Order of the Rose and points out many of the saints, the children in Paradise the angelic festival, the patricians of the court of heaven. Canto 33, Prayer to the Virgin, the Beatific Vision, the Ultimate Salvation. Test C. First series of questions about the Divine Comedy of Dante. 1. Dante divides his work into A, 3, B, 4, C, 6 major parts. 2. The major parts are titled A. Earth, Moon, Heaven, Angelic Circles B. Hell, Purgatory, Paradise C. Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso 3. The major parts are subdivided into A. Cantos B. Chapters C. Sections 4. The number of subdivisions in each of the major parts a. Are approximately equal. B. Are either 33 or 34. C. Range between 23 and 44. 5. The total number of subdivisions in the work is A. 99. B. 100. C. 101. 6. The main division of hell seems to be into A. Circles. B. Ledges. C. Pouches. 7. The main division of purgatory seems to be into A. Circles, B. Ledges, C. Pouches. 8. The main division of paradise seems to be according to A. The order of the virtues and vices, B. The order of the angelic hierarchy, C. The order of the planets of the solar system. 9. In hell, the movement is A. Downwards, B. Upwards. In purgatory, the movement is A, downwards, B, upwards. 10. The earthly paradise is found by Dante, A, in the part of the poem titled Purgatory, B, in the part of the poem titled Paradise. Answers to Test C 1. A. 2. B. Dante's own titles were the ones that appear in C. If you gave that as your answer, we would therefore have to count it as correct. 3. A. 4. A and B. 5. B. This is no accident, of course. Each major division of the poem, called in Italian a cantice, contains 33 cantos. The first canto of hell introduces the whole work. 6. A. Only the eighth circle is divided into pouches. 7. B. 
circles A is not really wrong. 8, C, but B would also be correct, as in Dante's cosmology, the nine orders of angels correspond to the nine heavenly bodies. 9, A, B, 10, A. Now, having skimmed the table of contents of the Divine Comedy and answered this first series of questions, take twenty minutes to read the table of contents superficially. Test D. Further questions about Dante's Divine Comedy. 1. Dante is guided through hell by A. Beatrice, B. Virgil, C. Lucifer. 2. Virgil is sent to help Dante by A. Beatrice, B. God, C. St. Bernard. 3. Dante's main concern is to describe A. Life after death, B. The kinds of lives men live on earth. 4. The Divine Comedy is A. Essentially a comic poem, B. A poetic treatment of selected theses in moral theology. C. An imaginative construct of the entire universe. 5. On which of the following ideologies and teachings does the poem seem to be most dependent? A. Humanistic. B. Greek and Latin. C. Christian. 6. The slothful are punished on the fourth ledge of purgatory. Is it significant that before leaving this ledge, Dante falls asleep? Yes or no? 7. In Canto 34 of Hell, Dante and Virgil reach the center of the universe. Why? 8. In Canto 9 of Purgatory, seven P's are inscribed on Dante's forehead, and one of these P's is removed as Dante passes upward past each of the ledges of the mountain of Purgatory. What is the significance of the P's? 9. Virgil accompanies Dante to the earthly paradise, Cantos 28-33 to 33 of Purgatory, but departs in Canto 30 and does not go with Dante to paradise. Why? 10. In Cantos 11 and 12 of Paradise, St. Thomas Aquinas narrates the life of St. Francis, and St. Bonaventura narrates the life of St. Dominic. What is the significance of this? The last five questions in Test D, which deal mainly with the symbolism of Dante's Divine Comedy, may be difficult or even impossible to answer on the basis of reading the table of contents alone. For that reason, if for no other, we have provided quite full answers to these questions. The justification for asking such questions is twofold. First, we are not certain that they cannot be answered from the table of contents alone. Second, and more important, they are designed to suggest one of the major characteristics of Dante's great work, that is, that it is symbolic through and through. Almost every statement Dante makes, and almost every person and event he describes, has at least two meanings and often three or four. We think that fact is probably clear from reading the table of contents alone, even if the details are not all spelled out. Hence, it might be interesting to try to answer questions 6 through 10 in this test without any outside help whatever 
even if you have never read Dante before or read about him. In other words, if you have to guess, how close are your guesses? Answers to Test D 1. B 2. A Beatrice acts for God, so B is not incorrect. 3. B 4. B and C Dante had not read Aristotle's Poetics, though he had read a synopsis of it suggesting that Aristotle defined a comedy as any work that ends fortunately. Dante's poem ends in heaven, hence fortunately, and therefore he titled it The Comedy. But of course it is not a comic work. 5. C. The poem is dependent on all three, but the Christian themes are the most important. 6. Yes. Dante felt that sloth had been one of his main sins, and he here symbolizes this by falling asleep. 7. In Dante's cosmology, the earth is the center of the universe, and hell is at the center of the earth. 8. The P's stand for the Latin word peccata, sins. There are seven P's because there are seven deadly sins, from each of which the souls are absolved in their ascent up the mountain of purgatory. 9. Virgil, in the poem, is the symbol of all human knowledge and virtue, but as a pagan who died before the birth of Christ, he cannot accompany Dante into paradise. 10. The Franciscans and the Dominicans were the two great monastic orders of the Middle Ages. The Franciscans were contemplatives, the Dominicans were scholars and teachers. Dante here symbolizes the heavenly resolution of all differences between the two orders by having St. Thomas, the greatest representative of the Dominicans, narrate the life of St. Francis, the founder of the Franciscans, while St. Bonaventura, the representative of the Franciscans, narrates the life of St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominicans. The biography of Charles Darwin and the table of contents of his The Origin of Species that appear on the following pages are taken from Volume 9 of Great Books of the Western World. Besides The Origin of Species, that volume also contains The Descent of Man, in which Darwin applied his general theory, as expounded in The Origin, to the puzzling question of the evolution of the human species. As in the case of Dante, read the biography of Darwin quickly, in five or six minutes, and then skim or pre-read the table of contents of The Origin of Species, devoting no more than ten minutes to the task. Charles Darwin, 1809-1882 In evaluating the qualities that accounted for his success as a man of science, Charles Darwin, in his modest autobiography, written because it might possibly interest my children, traces from his early youth the strongest desire to understand and explain whatever he observed. His childhood fantasies were concerned with fabulous discoveries in natural history. To his schoolmates, he boasted that he could produce variously colored flowers of the same plant by watering them with certain colored fluids. His father, a highly successful physician, was somewhat puzzled by the singular interest of his second son as well as by his undistinguished career in the classical curriculum of Dr. Butler's day school. He accordingly decided to send him to Edinburgh to study medicine. 
At Edinburgh, Darwin collected animals in tidal pools, trawled for oysters with New Haven fishermen to obtain specimens, and made two small discoveries, which he incorporated in papers read before the Plinian Society. He put forth no very strenuous effort to learn medicine. With some asperity, Dr. Darwin proposed the vocation of clergyman as an alternative. The life of a country clergyman appealed to young Darwin, and after quieting his doubts concerning his belief in all the dogmas of the Church, he began this new career at Cambridge. He proved unable, however, to repress his scientific interests and developed into an ardent entomologist, particularly devoted to collecting beetles. He had the satisfaction of seeing one of his rare specimens published in Stephen's Illustrations of British Insects. As at Edinburgh, he enjoyed many stimulating associations with men of science. It was a professor of botany at Cambridge, J. S. Henslow, who arranged for his appointment as naturalist on the government ship H.M.S. Beagle. From 1831 to 1836, the Beagle voyaged in southern waters. Lyell's researches into the changes wrought by natural processes set forth in Principles of Geology gave direction to Darwin's own observation of the geological structure of the Cape Verde Islands. He also made extensive examinations of coral reefs and noted the relations of animals on the mainland to those of the adjacent islands, as well as the relation of living animals to the fossil remains of the same species. Darwin described the voyage of the Beagle as by far the most important event in my life. Besides making him one of the best qualified naturalists of his day, it developed in him the habit of energetic industry and of concentrated attention. This new purposefulness on the part of his son was succinctly noted by Dr. Darwin, who remarked upon first seeing him after the voyage, Why, the shape of his head is quite altered. After his return, Darwin settled in London and began the task of organizing and recording his observations. He became a close friend of Lyell, the leading English geologist, and later of Hooker, an outstanding botanist. In 1839, he married his cousin, Emma Wedgwood, and toward the end of 1842, because of Darwin's chronic ill health, the family moved to Down, where he lived in seclusion for the rest of his days. During the six years in London, he prepared his journal from the notes of the voyage and published his carefully documented study of coral reefs. The next eight years were spent in the laborious classification of barnacles for his four-volume work on that subject. I have been struck, he wrote to Hooker, with the variability of every part in some slight degree of every species. After this period of detailed work with a single species, Darwin felt prepared to attack the problem of the modification of species which he had been pondering for many years. A number of facts had come to light during the voyage of the Beagle that Darwin felt could only be explained on the supposition that species gradually become modified. Later, after his return to England, he had collected all the material he could find which bore in any way on the variation of plants and animals under domestication. He soon perceived that selection was the keystone of man's success, but how selection could be applied to organisms living in a state of nature 
remained for some time a mystery. One day, while reading Malthus on population, it suddenly occurred to him how, in the struggle for existence, which he had everywhere observed, favorable variations would tend to be preserved, and unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result would be the formation of a new species. Here, then, I had at last a theory by which to work. He confided this theory to Hooker and Lyle, who urged him to write out his views for publication. But Darwin worked deliberately. He was only half through his projected book when, in the summer of 1858, he received an essay from A. R. Wallace at Ternate in the Moluccas, containing exactly the same theory as his own. Darwin submitted his dilemma to Hooker and Lyle, to whom he wrote, Your words have come true with a vengeance, that I should be forestalled. It was their decision to publish an abstract of his theory from a letter of the previous year, together with Wallace's essay, the joint work being entitled On the Tendency of Species to Form Varieties and on the Perpetuation of Varieties and Species by Natural Means of Selection. A year later, on November 24, 1859, The Origin of Species appeared. The entire first edition of 1,250 copies was sold on the day of publication. A storm of controversy arose over the book, reaching its height at a meeting of the British Association at Oxford, where the celebrated verbal duel between T. H. Huxley and Bishop Wilberforce took place. Darwin, who could not sleep when he answered an antagonist harshly, took Lyle's advice and saved both time and temper by avoiding the fray. In his work, however, he stayed close to his thesis. He expanded the material of the first chapter of The Origin into a book, Variation of Plants and Animals Under Domestication, 1868. In The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, 1871, Darwin fulfilled his statement in The Origin that light would be thrown on the origin of man and his history. The Expression of the Emotions, 1872, offered a natural explanation of phenomena which appeared to be a difficulty in the way of acceptance of evolution. His last works were concerned with the form, movement, and fertilization of plants. Darwin's existence at Down was peculiarly adapted to preserve his energy and give direct order to his activity. Because of his continual ill health, his wife took pains to shield him from every avoidable annoyance. He observed the same routine for nearly forty years, his days being carefully parceled into intervals of exercise and light reading in such proportions that he could utilize to his fullest capacity the four hours he devoted to work. His scientific reading and experimentation as well were organized with the most rigorous economy. Even the phases of his intellectual life non-essential to his work became, as he put it, atrophied, a fact which he regretted as a loss of happiness. Such non-scientific reading as he did was purely for relaxation, and he thought that a law ought to be passed against unhappy endings to novels. With his wife and seven children, his manner was so unusually affectionate and delightful that his son, Francis, marveled that he could preserve it with such an undemonstrative race as we are.
When he died on April 19, 1882, his family wanted him to be buried down. Public feeling decreed that he should be interred in Westminster Abbey, where he was laid beside Sir Isaac Newton. Table of Contents of the Origin of Species An Historical Sketch Introduction Chapter 1 Variation Under Domestication Causes of Variability Effects of Habit and the Use or Disuse of Parts Correlated Variation Inheritance Character of Domestic Varieties Difficulty of Distinguishing Between Varieties and Species Origin of domestic varieties from one or more species. Domestic pigeons, their differences and origin. Principles of selection, anciently followed, their effects. Methodical and unconscious selection. Unknown origin of our domestic productions. Circumstances favorable to man's power of selection. Chapter 2. Variation under nature. Variability. Individual differences, doubtful species, wide-ranging, much-diffused, and common species vary most. Species of the larger genera in each country vary more frequently than the species of the smaller genera. Many of the species of the larger genera resemble varieties in being very closely but unequally related to each other, and in having restricted ranges. Chapter 3 Struggle for existence, its bearing on natural selection, the term used in a wide sense, geometrical ratio of increase, rapid increase of naturalized animals and plants, nature of the checks to increase, competition universal, effects of climate, protection from the number of individuals, complex relations of all animals and plants throughout nature. Struggle for life most severe between individuals and varieties of the same species. Often severe between species of the same genus. The relation of organism to organism, the most important of all relations. Chapter 4. Natural Selection, or The Survival of the Fittest. Natural Selection. Its power compared with man's selection. Its power on characters of trifling importance its power at all ages and on both sexes. Sexual Selection On the generality of intercrosses between individuals of the same species. Circumstances favorable and unfavorable to the results of natural selection, namely intercrossing, isolation, number of individuals. Slow Action Extinction caused by natural selection. Divergence of Character related to the diversity of inhabitants of any small area, and to naturalization. Action of natural selection, through divergence of character and extinction, on the descendants from a common parent, explains the grouping of all organic beings. Advance in organization. Low forms preserved. Convergence of character. Indefinite multiplication of species. Summary. Chapter 5 Laws of Variation Effects of Changed Conditions, Use and Disuse, Combined with Natural Selection, Organs of Flight and of Vision, Acclimatization, Correlated Variation, Compensation and Economy of Growth, False Correlations, Multiple, Rudimentary, and Lowly Organized Structures Variable.
parts developed in an unusual manner are highly variable. Specific characters more variable than generic. Secondary sexual characters variable. Species of the same genus vary in an analogous manner. Reversions to long-lost characters. Summary. Chapter 6. Difficulties of the Theory. Difficulties of the Theory of Descent with Modification. Absence or Rarity of Transitional Varieties. Transitions in Habits of Life. Diversified Habits in the Same Species. Species with habits widely different from those of their allies. Organs of Extreme Perfection. Modes of Transition. Cases of Difficulty. Natura non facit saltum. Organs of Small Importance. Organs not in all cases absolutely perfect. The law of unity of type and of the conditions of existence embraced by the theory of natural selection. Chapter 7. Miscellaneous Objections to the Theory of Natural Selection. Longevity. Modifications not necessarily simultaneous. Modifications apparently of no direct service. Progressive development. Characters of small functional importance, the most constant. Supposed incompetence of natural selection to account for the incipient stages of useful structures. Causes which interfere with the acquisition through natural selection of useful structures. Graduations of structure with changed functions. Widely different organs in members of the same class developed from one and the same source. Reasons for disbelieving in great and abrupt modifications. Chapter 8. Instinct Instincts comparable with habits but different in their origin. Instincts graduated. Aphids and ants. Instincts variable. Domestic instincts, their origin. Natural instincts of the cuckoo, molothrus, ostrich, and parasitic bees. Slave-making ants. Hive bee, its cell-making instinct. Changes of instinct and structure not necessarily simultaneous. Difficulties of the theory of the natural selection of instincts. Neuter or sterile insects. Summary. Chapter 9. Hybridism. Distinction between the sterility of first crosses and of hybrids. Sterility various in degree, not universal, affected by close interbreeding, removed by domestication. Laws governing the sterility of hybrids. Sterility not a special endowment, but incidental on other differences, not accumulated by natural selection. Causes of the sterility of first crosses and of hybrids. Parallelism between the effects of changed conditions of life and of crossing. Dimorphism and trimorphism. Fertility of varieties when crossed, and of their mongrel offspring, not universal. Hybrids and mongrels, compared independently of their fertility. Summary Chapter 10 On the Imperfection of the Geological Record On the Absence of Intermediate Varieties at the Present Day on the nature of extinct intermediate varieties, on their number, on the lapse of time, as inferred from the rate of denudation and of deposition, on the lapse of time as estimated by years, on the poorness of our paleontological collections, on the intermittence of geological formations, 
on the denudation of granitic areas, on the absence of intermediate varieties in any one formation, on the sudden appearance of groups of species, on their sudden appearance in the lowest known fossiliferous strata, antiquity of the habitable earth. Chapter 11 On the Geological Succession of Organic Beings On the slow and successive appearance of new species, on their different rates of change, Species once lost do not reappear. Groups of species follow the same general rules in their appearance and disappearance, as do single species. On extinction. On simultaneous changes in the forms of life throughout the world. On the affinities of extinct species to each other and to living species. On the state of development of ancient forms. On the succession of the same types within the same areas. Summary of Preceding and Present Chapters Chapter 12 Geographical Distribution Present distribution cannot be accounted for by differences in physical condition, importance of barriers, affinity of the productions of the same continent, centers of creation, means of dispersal by changes of climate and of the level of the land, and by occasional means, dispersal during the glacial period, Alternate Glacial Periods in the North and South Chapter 13 Geographical Distribution Continued Distribution of Freshwater Productions On the Inhabitants of Oceanic Islands Absence of Betrachians and of Terrestrial Mammals On the Relation of the Inhabitants of Islands to Those of the Nearest Mainland On Colonization from the Nearest Source with Subsequent Modification Summary of the Last and Present Chapters Chapter 14 Mutual Affinities of Organic Beings Morphology, Embryology, Rudimentary Organs Classification Groups Subordinate to Groups Natural System Rules and Difficulties in Classification Explained on the Theory of Descent with Modification Classification of Varieties Descent always used in classification. Analogical or adaptive characters. Affinities, general, complex, and radiating. Extinction separates and defines groups. Morphology, between members of the same class, between parts of the same individual. Embryology, laws of, explained by variations not supervening at an early age and being inherited at a corresponding age. Rudimentary Organs Their Origin Explained Summary Chapter 15 Recapitulation and Conclusion Recapitulation of the Objections to the Theory of Natural Selection Recapitulation of the General and Special Circumstances in its Favor Causes of the General Belief in the Immutability of Species How Far the Theory of Natural Selection May Be Extended Effects of Its Adoption on the Study of Natural History. Concluding Remarks Test E. Questions about Darwin and about the origin of species. 1. In The Origin of Species, Darwin undertakes to describe the origin and evolution of man, true or false. 2. The work is divided into A, 12, B, 15, C, 19 chapters. 3. The book emphasizes the role of domestication in natural selection, true 
or false? 4. Darwin asserts that the struggle for life is A. more severe, B. less severe, between individuals of the same species than it is between individuals of different species. 5. Darwin takes no account of and does not try to answer difficulties of and objections against his theory. True or false? 6. Darwin was unable to complete The Origin of Species, and the book therefore lacks a chapter summing up his theory and his conclusions. True or false? 7. Darwin enjoyed taking part in the disputes that developed as a consequence of his work. True or false? 8. In the famous debate at Oxford between T. H. Huxley and Bishop Wilberforce, which man defended Darwin and his theory? 9. Darwin described as, by far the most important event in my life, a. his reading of Malthus's essay on the principle of population, b. his youthful study of medicine, c. his voyage on the Beagle. 10. Darwin thought that a law ought to be passed against a. novels, b. pornographic novels, c. novels having scientists as their main characters, d. novels with unhappy endings. Answers to Test E 1. False 2. B 3. False In fact, the statement is meaningless. 4. A 5. False 6. False 7. False 8. Huxley defended Darwin 9. C 10. D To lovers of Darwin this is one of the most charming facts about the man. Those questions were all very easy ones. Now, take another twenty minutes to read the table of contents of the origin of species superficially, and then we will ask you to consider some more difficult questions. Test F. Further questions about Darwin and the origin of species. 1. Darwin, making extensive use of the geological record, considers it a. Complete and satisfactory. B. Incomplete, but an invaluable source of data on the origin of species. 2. Species refers to a group of animals or plants, A. Lower, B. Higher than a genus. 3. Members of a species share common characteristics and can interbreed and reproduce their kinds. True or false? 4. Members of a genus share common characteristics, but are not necessarily able to interbreed and reproduce their kind. True or false? 5. Of the following factors, which ones play a major role and which a minor role in natural selection? A. The struggle for existence, major or minor. B. Variation of individuals, major or minor. C. Heritability of traits, major or minor. 6. Darwin compares the power of natural selection to that of man's selection. Which does he think is greater? 7. The Latin phrase, natura non facet saltum, appears in the table of contents. Can you translate this phrase? Can you state the significance of the phrase for Darwin's theory? 8. What is the significance of geological dispersion and of natural barriers, such as the oceans, on the evolution of species? 9. 
In his introduction to the origin of species, Darwin refers to the origin of species as that mystery of mysteries, as it has been called by one of our greatest philosophers. Can you state fairly exactly the problem that his work sets out to solve? You might try to do this in no more than a sentence or two. 10. What is Darwin's theory, in a nutshell? Can you state it in no more than 100 words? Answers to Test F 1. B 2. A 3. True In fact, this comes close to being the definition of a species. 4. True Members of a genus can interbreed and reproduce their kind only if they are also members of the same species. 5. A, B, and C all play major roles in natural selection. 6. Natural selection. Would Darwin change his mind if he were alive today in the face of the evidence of man's destructive effect on the environment? Perhaps. But he might still continue to insist that in the long run, Nature is more powerful than man, and then, too, man is himself a part of nature. 7. The phrase can be translated, Nature makes no jumps. That is, sudden, great, and abrupt variations do not occur naturally, but only small and gradual ones. Even if you are not able to translate the Latin, was the sense of this statement clear from the table of contents? The idea is significant because Darwin, taking it as true, explains the fact that there is great differentiation between species by the hypothesis of gaps in the geological record, so-called missing links, instead of by the hypothesis of created differences between species. 8. According to Darwin, if two varieties of a single species are widely separated over a considerable period of time, so that they are physically hindered from interbreeding. The varieties tend to become separate species, that is, become incapable of interbreeding. It was his discovery of quite distinct species of birds on the oceanic islands during his service on the Beagle that first led him to see this fundamental point. 9. There are probably many ways to state the problem but one way to do it is to ask two apparently simple questions. First, why are there many kinds of living things instead of just one or a few? Second, how does a species come into existence, and how does it pass away? Which Darwin and his contemporaries knew from the geological record had happened many times. It may be necessary to think about these questions for a while to realize why they are so very difficult and so very mysterious, but they are well worth thinking about. 10. We are not sure that an adequate answer to this question can be arrived at on the basis of a mere perusal, however intensive, of the table of contents of the origin of species. If you were able to state the theory in a hundred words without having read the book, you are an extraordinary reader. Indeed, the question is not easy to answer briefly, even if one has read the book, you might refer to our attempt to summarize the theory in Chapter 7. In a short passage in his own introduction to the work, Darwin may have done it himself, and we quote the passage in its entirety here for what it's worth. 
as many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive, and as, consequently, there is a frequently recurring struggle for existence, it follows that any being, if it vary, however slightly in any manner profitably to itself, under the complex and sometimes varying conditions of life, will have a better chance of surviving, and thus be naturally selected. From the strong principle of inheritance, any selected variety will tend to propagate its new and modified form. You have now completed the two-part exercise at the second level of reading. As before, you will have noted that the questions draw not only on the texts read, but also on historical and other information. Indeed, you may feel that some of the questions were eminently unfair, and so they would be, if any critical decision depended on your ability to answer them. That, of course, is not so. We hope that the questions you were unable to answer or that you found it very difficult to answer will not irritate you, but will instead lead you to search in the works that have been only superficially discussed here for better answers than the ones we have given. Better answers are available in the works themselves, and also answers to many more interesting questions that we have not had the time, the space, or the wit to ask. 3. Exercises and Tests at the Third Level of Reading Analytical Reading The text used for the exercises in this part of the appendix is this book itself. We would prefer it if this were not so. There are many books that it would be better and more fruitful to practice analytical reading on. But over against that preference there is one overriding consideration. This book is the only one that we can be sure that all persons taking this test have read. The only alternative would be to reprint another book along with this one, and that is out of the question. You will recall that the analytical reader must always attempt to answer four questions about whatever book he is reading. 1. What is the book about as a whole? 2. What is being said in detail and how? 3. Is the book true in whole or part? 4. What of it? The fifteen rules of reading, as they are listed and discussed at length in Part 2, are designed to help the analytical reader answer these questions. Can you answer them about this book? You must be the judge of whether you can or not. There are no answers at the end of this appendix to these four questions. The answers are in the book itself. Not only is it true that we have done the best job we could of making these matters clear in writing the book, it is also true that in an important sense, it would be inappropriate to try to help you any more than we already have. Not only is analytical reading work, it is lonely work. The reader is alone with the book he is reading. Basically, there is no resource to exploit except his own thought. There is no place to go for insight and understanding except into his own mind. We have explained how the questions must be answered for and the rules applied to different kinds of books, but we cannot state how they are to be applied to any given work. The reader himself must be the one to do that. There are nevertheless a few things that can be said without exceeding the proprieties. We have not concealed the fact that this is a practical book, so applying the first rule of structural analysis is easy enough. We think we have also made it pretty clear what the book is about as a whole, although now you should state this more briefly than we have done in any one place. 
We hope that our organization into four parts and twenty-one chapters is perspicuous. However, in outlining the book, it might be desirable to comment on the unequal treatment, in terms of numbers of pages, accorded the various levels of reading. The first level of reading, elementary reading, receives relatively short shrift in this book, although it is of undoubted importance. Why? The third level of reading, analytical reading, receives much more extensive and intensive coverage than any of the other levels. Again, why? With regard to the fourth rule of structural analysis, we want to emphasize that the problem we set out to solve cannot be defined simply as teaching you to read. There is nothing in this book, for example, that would be of much help to a first or second grade teacher. We have concentrated instead on reading in a certain way and with certain goals in mind. In applying the fourth rule of reading, that way and those goals should be described with precision. Similarly, with the second stage of analytical reading, interpretation. The first three rules at that stage must be applied by the reader without our help. The rules that require you to come to terms, to find the key propositions, and to construct the arguments. There would be no point in our trying to list what we think are the terms of this work important words that must be understood commonly by you and by us, if the work as a whole is to communicate knowledge or impart skill. Nor will we repeat the propositions that we have asserted, and that the reader, if he has read analytically, should be able to state in his own words. Nor will we repeat the arguments. To do so would be to write the book over again. Something can be said, however, about the problems that we did and did not solve, we believe we did solve the main problem that faced us at the beginning, the problem that you must have identified in your application of the fourth rule of structural analysis. We do not believe that we solved all of the problems of reading that face students and adult readers today. For one thing, many of these problems involve individual differences between human beings. No book on a general subject can ever hope to solve such difficulties. The criticism of a book as a communication of knowledge involves, as you will recall, the application of seven rules, three of which are general maxims of intellectual etiquette, and four of which are specific criteria for points of criticism. We have done what we could to recommend the maxims of intellectual etiquette. They are discussed in Chapter 10. With regard to the first three points of criticism, we can have nothing to say. But a few remarks about the last of the four criteria of criticism to show wherein the analysis in the book is incomplete, are not inappropriate. We would say that our analysis or account is incomplete in two respects. The first is in regard to the first level of reading. There is much more to be said about elementary reading, but we do want to emphasize that that was not our primary concern. Nor would we claim for our discussion of the subject any degree of finality. Elementary reading could be discussed and has been discussed in quite different ways. The other respect in which our analysis is incomplete is much more important. We did not say all that could be said, perhaps not even all that we could say, about syntopical reading. There are two reasons for this. First, syntopical reading is extraordinarily hard to describe and explain without having the texts of various authors in front of one. Fortunately, we will have the opportunity in the last part of this appendix, which follows, of presenting an actual exercise in syntopical reading. But even there, we will be confined to two short texts by only two authors. A full-scale exercise would involve 
many texts from many authors, and the examination of many complex questions. Space limitations prohibit that here. Second, it is almost impossible to describe the intellectual excitement and satisfaction that come from syntopical reading without actually sharing the experience of doing it, nor is the understanding that one finally arrives at attained in a day. Often it takes months or years to unwind the twisted thread of the discussion of an important point, a thread that may have been in the process of becoming twisted over centuries. Many false starts are made, and many tentative analyses and organizations of the discussions must be proposed before any real light is thrown on the subject. We have suffered through many of these problems, and we know how disheartening the business can be at times. As a result, however, we also know how wonderful it can be when one finally wins one's way through to a solution. Are there other respects in which our analysis is incomplete? We can think of a few possibilities. For example, does the book fail to differentiate sufficiently between what might be called first intentional reading, that is, reading a text, and second intentional reading, that is, reading a commentary on that text? Is enough said about reading heretical in contradistinction to canonical texts, or enough about the reading of texts that stand detached above so-called canonical and heretical texts? Is enough attention paid to the problems raised by special vocabularies, especially in science and mathematics? This aspect of the general problem of reading is mentioned in the chapter on reading social science. Perhaps not enough space is devoted to the reading of lyric poetry. Beyond that, we are not sure that we know of anything that deserves criticism on this last count. But we would not be surprised to discover that some defects or failures that are not at all obvious to us are perfectly obvious to you. 4. Exercises and Tests at the Fourth Level of Reading, Syntopical Reading Two texts are used for the exercises in this fourth and last part of the appendix. One consists of selected passages from the first two chapters of Book One of Aristotle's Politics. The other consists of selected passages from Book One of Rousseau's The Social Contract, a sentence from the introduction to the book and passages from chapters 1, 2, 4, and 6. Aristotle's Politics appears in Volume 9 of Great Books of the Western World. Volumes 8 and 9 of the set are devoted to the complete works of Aristotle. Besides the Politics, Volume 9 includes the Ethics, the Rhetoric, and the Poetics, as well as a number of biological treatises. Rousseau's Social Contract appears in Volume 38 of the set, a volume that includes other works by Rousseau as well, the essay On the Origin of Inequality and On Political Economy, together with another important 18th-century French political book, Montesquieu's The Spirit of Laws. You will recall that there are two stages of syntopical reading. One is a preparatory step. The other is syntopical reading proper. For the purposes of this exercise, we assume that the first or preparatory step has already been taken, that is, that we have decided on the subject we wish to consider, and we have also decided on the texts we want to read. The subject in this case may be defined as 
The Nature and Origin of the State A subject of importance about which a great deal has been thought and said. The texts are as described above. We must assume further, if this exercise is not to exceed the limits set by the space available to us, that we have narrowed the question to be considered here, with the help of these two texts, to a single inquiry, which can be stated as follows. Is the state a natural arrangement, with all that that implies of goodness and necessity, or is it merely a conventional or artificial arrangement? That is our question. Now read the two texts carefully, taking as much time as you wish or need. Speed is never important in syntopical reading. Make notes if you want to, and return to the texts as often as you wish in considering the questions that follow. From Book One of Aristotle's Politics From Chapter One Every state is a community of some kind, and every community is established with a view of some good. For mankind always act in order to obtain that which they think good. But if all communities aim at some good, the state or political community, which is the highest of all, and which embraces all the rest, aims at good in a greater degree than any other, and at the highest good. From Chapter 2 The family is the association established by nature for the supply of men's everyday wants, and the members of it are called by Carondus companions of the cupboard, and by Epimenides the Cretan, companions of the manger. But when several families are united, and the association aims at something more than the supply of daily needs, the first society to be formed is the village, and the most natural form of the village appears to be that of a colony from the family, composed of the children and grandchildren who are said to be suckled with the same milk. And this is the reason why Hellenic states were originally governed by kings, because the Hellenes were under royal rule before they came together, as the barbarians still are. When several villages are united in a single complete community, large enough to be nearly or quite self-sufficing, the state comes into existence. Originating in the bare needs of life, and continuing in existence for the sake of a good life, and therefore, if the earlier forms of society are natural, so is the state, for it is the end of them, and the nature of a thing is its end. For what each thing is when fully developed, we call its nature, whether we are speaking of a man, a horse, or a family. Besides, the final cause and end of a thing is the best, and to be self-sufficing is the end and the best. Hence it is evident that the state is a creation of nature, and that man is, by nature, a political animal. Now, that man is more of a political animal than bees, or any other gregarious animals, is evident. Nature, as we often say, makes nothing in vain, and man is the only animal whom she has endowed with the gift of speech, and whereas mere voice is but an indication of pleasure or pain, and is therefore found in other animals, for their nature attains to the perception of pleasure and pain, and the intimation of them to one another, and no further. 
The power of speech is intended to set forth the expedient and inexpedient, and therefore likewise the just and the unjust. And it is a characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust, and the like. And the association of living beings who have this sense makes a family and a state. Further, the state is by nature clearly prior to the family and to the individual, since the whole is of necessity prior to the part. For example, if the whole body be destroyed, there will be no foot or hand, except in an equivocal sense, as we might speak of a stone hand. For when destroyed, the hand will be no better than that. But things are defined by their working and power, and we ought not to say that they are the same when they no longer have their proper quality, but only that they have the same name. The proof that the state is a creation of nature, and prior to the individual, is that the individual, when isolated, is not self-sufficing, and therefore he is like a part in relation to the whole. But he who is unable to live in society, or who has no need because he is sufficient for himself, must be either a beast or a god. He is no part of a state. A social instinct is implanted in all men by nature. And yet he who first founded the state was the greatest of benefactors. For man, when perfected, is the best of animals, but when separated from law and justice, he is the worst of all. From Book One of Rousseau's The Social Contract I mean to inquire if, in the civil order, there can be any sure and legitimate rule of administration, men being taken as they are, and laws as they might be. From Chapter 1 Subject of the First Book Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others, and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question I think I can answer. From Chapter 2 The First Societies The most ancient of all societies, and the only one that is natural, is the family. And even so the children remain attached to the father only so long as they need him for their preservation. As soon as this need ceases, the natural bond is dissolved. The children, released from the obedience they owed to the father, and the father, released from the care he owed his children, return equally to independence. If they remain united, they continue so no longer naturally, but voluntarily, and the family itself is then maintained only by convention. The family then may be called the first model of political societies. The ruler corresponds to the father, and the people to the children, and all, being born free and equal, alienate their liberty only for their own advantage. From Chapter 4 Slavery Since no man has a natural authority over his fellow, and force creates no right, we must conclude that conventions form the basis of all legitimate authority among men. From Chapter 6, The Social Contract 
I suppose men to have reached the point at which the obstacles in the way of their preservation in the state of nature show their power of resistance to be greater than the resources at the disposal of each individual for his maintenance in that state. That primitive condition can then subsist no longer, and the human race would perish unless it changed its manner of existence. But as men cannot engender new forces, but only unite and direct existing ones, they have no other means of preserving themselves than the formation, by aggregation, of a sum of forces great enough to overcome the resistance. These they have to bring into play by means of a single motive power and cause to act in concert. This sum of forces can arise only where several persons come together. But as the force and liberty of each man are the chief instruments of his self-preservation, how can he pledge them without harming his own interests and neglecting the care he owes to himself? This difficulty, in its bearing on my present subject, may be stated in the following terms. The problem is to find a form of association which will defend and protect, with the whole common force, the person and goods of each associate, and in which each, while uniting himself with all, may still obey himself alone, and remain as free as before. This is the fundamental problem of which the social contract provides the solution. If then we discard from the social compact what is not of its essence, we shall find that it reduces itself to the following terms. Each of us puts his person and all his power in common under the supreme direction of the general will, and in our corporate capacity we receive each member as an indivisible part of the whole. At once, in place of the individual personality of each contracting party, this act of association creates a moral and collective body, composed of as many members as the assembly contains votes, and receiving from this act its unity, its common identity, its life, and its will. This public person, so formed by the union of all other persons, formerly took the name of city, polis, and now takes that of republic, or body politic. It is called by its members state when passive, sovereign when active, and power when compared with others like itself. Those who are associated in it take collectively the name of people, and severally are called citizens, as sharing in the sovereign power, and subjects as being under the laws of the state. But these terms are often confused and taken for one another. It is enough to know how to distinguish them when they are being used with precision. We will ask you to entertain two sets of questions about these two texts, after which we will suggest some tentative conclusions that we believe can justifiably be drawn from the texts. Test G here is the first set of questions about Aristotle and Rousseau. 1. Aristotle identifies three different types of human association. What are they? 2. 
these three types of association have certain things in common and also differ in significant respects. What do they have in common and how do they differ? 3. The three types of association differ in regard to their inclusiveness. Can you order them on a scale going from less to more inclusive? 4. All three types of association aim at fulfilling some natural need, that is, they achieve some good. The good achieved by the family, that is, the security of its members and the perpetuation of the race, is also achieved by the village, but in a higher degree. Is the good aimed at or achieved by the state merely the same good in an even higher degree, or is it a different good altogether? 5. Another way to get at this difference is by still another question. Given that, for Aristotle, all three types of association are natural, are they natural in the same way? 6. Before turning to some questions about Rousseau in this first set of questions, we must mention the one remark of Aristotle's that raises a difficulty. Aristotle praises highly the man who first founded the state. Would he speak similarly of the man who first founded the family or the village? 7. What is the main problem that Rousseau poses about the state? 8. Does Rousseau pose the same problem about the family? 9. What is the opposite of the natural for Rousseau? 10. What is the basic or founding convention that, for Rousseau, makes the state legitimate? Answers to Test G 1. The family, the village, the state. 2. They have in common that they are all modes of human association and that they are all natural. Aristotle is clear on the latter point. It is evident, he says, that the state is a creation of nature. However, the differences between the types of association are important. If you have not yet identified these differences as Aristotle describes them, some further questions may be of help. 3. The family is the least inclusive. The village includes several families and is therefore more inclusive than the family. The state is the most inclusive of all, for it comes into existence when several villages are united in a single complete community. 4. Aristotle says the state originates in the bare needs of life, but that it continues in existence for the sake of a good life. A good life seems to be different in kind from mere life. In fact, this seems to be the main difference between the state and the other two types of human association. 5. Though the types of association are indeed natural, they are not natural in the same way. Aristotle observes that many animals as well as men live in families, and he notes that such animals as bees seem to have organizations that are analogous to the village. But man differs in that, while being social, like many other animals, he is also political. In his discussion of man's unique possession of speech, Aristotle is saying that man alone is political. He is naturally a political animal, and so the state which serves the need of this aspect of his being is natural. 
but only the state, among the types of association that he experiences, serves this particular need. 6. Apparently Aristotle would not praise highly the man who first founded the village or the family, as he does the man who first founded the state. And this remark causes a difficulty, for if the state was first founded by someone, then it can be said to have been invented. And if it was invented, then is it not artificial? But we have concluded that it is natural. 7. The main problem Rousseau poses about the state is its legitimacy. If the state were not legitimate, Rousseau asserts, then its laws would not have to be obeyed. 8. He does not pose the same problem about the family. He clearly says that the basis of the family is a natural need, the same natural need that Aristotle describes. 9. The conventional. For Rousseau, the state is conventional. For if the state were like the family, that fact would legitimize paternal rule, the rule of a benevolent despot, which is what the father is to his family. Force, which is what the father has, cannot make a state legitimate. Only an agreed-upon understanding, a convention, can do that. 10. The social contract is, for Rousseau, the founding convention, undertaken at a first moment when all members of the state are unanimous in desiring and choosing it. It is this that legitimizes the institution of the state. After this first set of questions about the two texts, we appear to have arrived at an interpretation of the two texts that sees them in disagreement on the question we have been considering. That question is, as you will recall, is the state natural, or is it conventional or artificial? Rousseau appears to say that the state is conventional or artificial. Aristotle appears to say that it is natural. Now take a few moments to consider whether this interpretation is correct. Is there anything about the problematic remark of Aristotle's we mentioned that calls the interpretation in doubt? Is there anything that Rousseau says that we have not discussed and that also must cause us to doubt this interpretation? If you see why this interpretation is not correct, you will probably already have anticipated the few remaining questions we want to ask. Test H. Here is the second set of questions. 1. For Rousseau, is the state natural as well as conventional? 2. Does Aristotle agree in this? 3. Can this basic agreement between Aristotle and Rousseau be extended to further points? 4. In the answer to the last question, we spoke of the good that the state achieves, which cannot be achieved without it. Is this good the same for Rousseau as for Aristotle? 5. One final question. Does the agreement we have found on our primary question mean that these two texts, short as they are, are in agreement on all points? Answers to Test H 1. Yes. He clearly states that men, by nature, need the state, for the state comes into existence at a time when life in the condition of nature is no longer possible for men.
and without the state, they could no longer continue to exist. Therefore, we must conclude that, in the view of Rousseau, the state is both natural and conventional. It is natural in the sense that it serves a natural need, but it is legitimate only if it is based on a founding convention, the social contract. 2. Yes, Aristotle and Rousseau agree that the state is both natural and conventional. 3. Aristotle and Rousseau also agree that the naturalness of the state is not like that of animal societies. Its naturalness arises from need or necessity. It achieves a good that cannot be achieved without it. But though the state is natural, that is, necessary, as a means to a naturally sought end, it is also a work of reason and will. The key word to define or identify this further agreement between the two writers is constitution. For Aristotle, he who first constituted a society, founded a state. For Rousseau, men, by entering into a convention of government or social contract, constitute a state. 4. No. The good the state achieves is not the same for Rousseau as for Aristotle. The reasons are complex and are not really documented in the passages reprinted here. But Aristotle's conception of the good life, which is the end that the state serves, is different from Rousseau's conception of the life of the citizen, which for him is the end that the state serves. Fully to understand this difference would require reading further in the politics and the social contract. 5. Clearly the two works are not in full agreement throughout. Even in these short selections, each of the authors raises points that the other does not discuss. For example, there is no mention in the Rousseau text of a notion that is certainly important to Aristotle, namely, that man is essentially a political as well as a social animal. Nor does the word justice appear in the Rousseau text, although it seems to be a key term for Aristotle. On the other hand, there is no mention in the Aristotle text of such key terms and basic ideas as the social compact, the liberty of the individual, the alienation of that liberty, the general will, and so forth, all of which seem to be central in Rousseau's treatment of the subject. We said at the beginning of this exercise that there are certain conclusions that can justifiably be drawn from the careful reading of these two important political texts. Among them are these. First, it is a basic truth about man that he is a political animal. You may use some other adjective if you wish. As contradistinguished from other social or gregarious animals. That is, that man is a rational social animal who constitutes a society to serve other than merely biological ends. It follows from this that the state is both natural and conventional, that it is both more and less natural than the family, and it follows also that the state must be formally constituted. Other societies are not true states. Second, we may reasonably conclude that the state is a means, not an end. The end is the common human good, 
a good life. Hence, man is not made for the state, but the state for man. These conclusions seem to us to be justified, and we also believe that the answers we have given to the questions are correct. But more than feeling or belief is required in a genuine project of syntopical reading. We noted in our discussion of this level of reading that it is always desirable to document one's answers and conclusions from the texts of the authors themselves. We have not done that here. You might want to try to do it for yourself. If you're puzzled by any of our answers, see if you can find the passage or passages in the text, either by Aristotle or Rousseau, that must have formed the basis of the answer we give. And if you disagree with any of our answers or conclusions, see if you can document your disagreement by means of the words of the authors themselves. This concludes the reading of How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren. Copyright 1972 by Mortimer J. Adler and Charles Van Doren. This unabridged recording of the reading of How to Read a Book was published by arrangement with Macmillan Publishing Company, a division of Simon & Schuster Incorporated, and was produced in 1997 by Blackstone Audiobooks Incorporated, which holds the copyright thereto. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audiobooks. The book was read by Edward Holland. Thank you. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.